This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of In the Clutch of the War God by Milo Hastings. It's read by Kate Fallis for LibriVox. It runs 1 hour 47 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kate Fallis. In the Clutch of the War God by Milo Hastings. The Tale of the Orient's Invasion of the Occident, as chronicled in the Humaniculture Society's History of the Twentieth Century, in three parts, from Physical Culture Magazine, July to September 1911. Part 1. Forward. In this strange story of another day, the author has dipped into the future and viewed with his mind's eye the ultimate effect of America's self-satisfied complacency and her persistent refusal to heed the lessons of Oriental progress. I can safely promise the reader who takes up this unique recital of the twentieth-century warfare that his interest will be sustained to the very end by the interesting deductions and the keen insight into the possibilities of the present trend of international affairs exhibited by the author bernard mcfadden kindly be prepared to absent yourself at a moment's notice it was goyou speaking blundering old fool he was standing in the doorway with his kitchen apron on and an iron spoon in his hand what on earth is the matter asked ethel calvert tossing aside her french novel in alarm for such a lack of deference in goyou meant vastly more than appeared upon the surface i am informed replied goyou gravely that there has been an anti-foreign riot and that many are killed and father gasped ethel he was upon the grain boat said goyou but where is he now i do not know returned goyou looking nervously over his shoulder but i fear he has not fared well the boat was dynamited that's what started the trouble with a gasp ethel recalled that an hour before she had heard an explosion which she had supposed to be blasting faint with fear she staggered toward a couch and fell forward upon the cushions when the girl regained consciousness the house was dark slowly she recalled the event that had culminated the eventful day she wondered if goyou had been lying or had gone crazy the darkness was not reassuring her father always came home before dark and his absence now confirmed her fears she wondered if the old servant had deserted her he was a poor stick anyway japanese men who had pride or character no longer worked as domestics in the household of foreigners ethel calvert was the daughter of an american grain merchant who represented the interests of the north american grain exporters association at the seaport of otaru in tokaidi the north island of japan 
three years before her mother had died of homesickness and a broken heart although the japanese physician had called it tuberculosis and had prescribed life in a tent had they not suffered discomforts enough in that barbarous country without adding insult to injury ethel was bountifully possessed of the qualities of hot-house beauty her jet-black hair hung over the snowy skin of her temples in striking contrast her form was of a delicate slenderness and her movement easy and graceful with just a little of that languid listlessness considered as a mark of well-bred femininity she knew that she was beautiful according to the standards of her own people and her isolation from the swirl of the world's social life was to her gall and wormwood the calverts had never really settled in japan but had merely remained there as homesick americans indifferent to or unjustly prejudiced against the japanese life about them now in the year nineteen fifty eight the growing anti-foreign feeling among the japanese had added to their isolation moreover the japanese bore the grain merchant an especial dislike for every patriotic japanese was sore at heart over the fact that after a century of modern progress japan was still forced to depend upon foreigners to supplement their food supply in fact they had oft heard professor oshima grieve over the statistics of grain importation as a speculator might mourn his personal losses in the stock market for a time ethel lay still and listened to the faint sound of voices from a neighbouring porch then the growing horror of the situation came over her with a nude force if her father was dead she was not only alone in the world but stranded in a foreign and an unfriendly country for there were but few americans left in the city the girl arose and crept nervously into the dining-room she turned on the electric light everything seemed in order she hurried over to goyu's room and knocked there was no answer then slowly opening the door she peered in the room was empty and disordered plainly the occupant had bundled together his few belongings and flown ethel stole back through the silent house and tremblingly took down the telephone receiver in vain she called the numbers of the few american families of the city last on the list was the american consulate and this time she received the curt information that the consul had left the city by aeroplane with the other foreigners the phrase struck terror into her heart if the european population had flown in such haste as to overlook her clearly there was danger a great fear grew upon her afraid to remain where she was she tried to think of ways of escape she could not steer an aeroplane even if she were able to obtain one otaru was far from the common ways of international traffic and the ships lying at anchor in the harbour were freighters japanese owned and japanese manned ethel looked at her watch it was nine-twenty she tiptoed to her room an hour later she was in the street dressed in a tailored suit of american make and carrying in her handbag a few trinkets and valuables she had found in the house passing hurriedly through quiet avenues she was soon in the open country 
the road she followed was familiar to her as she had travelled it many times by auto for hours she walked rapidly on her unpractised muscles grew tired and her feet jammed forward in high-heeled shoes were blistered and sore but fear lent courage and as the first rays of the morning sun peaked over the hilltops the refugee reached the outskirts of the city of sapporo ethel made straight way for the residence of professor oshima the soil chemist of the imperial agricultural college of hokiado a japanese gentleman who had been educated and who had married abroad and close friend of her father's as she reached the door of the professor's bungalow she pushed the bell and sank exhausted upon the stoop some time afterward she half dreamed and half realized that she found herself neatly tucked between white silk sheets and lying on a floor mattress of a japanese sleeping porch a gentle breeze fanned her face through the lattice-work and low slanting sunbeams sifting in between the shutters fell in rounded blotches upon the opposite straw matting wall for a time she lay musing and again fell asleep when she next awakened the room was dimly lighted by a little glowing electric bulb and madame oshima was sitting near her her hostess greeted her cordially and offered her water and some fresh fruit madame oshima was fully posted upon the riots and confirmed ethel's fears as to the fate of her father you will be safe here for the present her hostess assured her professor oshima has been called to tokyo when he returns we will see what can be done concerning your embarking for america madame oshima was of french descent but had fully adopted japanese customs and ways of thinking as soon as ethel was up and about her hostess suggested that she exchange her american-made clothing for the japanese costume of the time but ethel was inclined to rebel why she protested if i discarded my corsets i would lose my figure but if i lost my figure inquired the lithe madame oshima striking an attitude to this ethel did not reply but continued and i would look like a man for among the japanese people tight-belted waists and flopping skirts had long since been replaced by the kimo a single-piece garment worn by both sexes and which fitted the entire body with comfortable snugness and is a man so ill-looking asked her companion smiling why no of course not only he's different why i couldn't wear a kimo people would see my limbs stammered the properly bred american girl why no they couldn't replied madame oshima not if you keep your chemo on but they would see my figure well i thought you just said that was what you were afraid they wouldn't see but i don't mean that way they they could see the shape of my my legs said ethel blushing crimson are you ashamed that your body has such vulgar parts returned the older woman no of course not said ethel choking back her embarrassment but it's wicked for a girl to let men know such things oh they all know it replied madame oshima they learn it in school at this the highly strong ethel 
burst into sobs there there now said her companion regretting that she had spoken sarcastically i forget that i once had such ideas also we'll talk some more about it after a while you are nervous and worried now and must have more rest the next day madame oshima more tactfully approached the subject and showed her protege that while in rome it was more modest to do as the romans do and that moreover it was necessary for her own good and theirs that she attract as little attention as possible and to those that recognized her caucasian blood appear superficially at least as a naturalized citizen of japan so amid blushes and tears protestations and laughter ethel accepted the kimo or one-piece japanese garment and the outer flowing cloak to be worn on state occasions when freedom of bodily movement was not required her feather-adorned hat was discarded altogether and her ill-shapen high-heeled boots replaced by airy slippers of braided fibre her rather short stature and her hair which fortunately enough was black served to lessen her conspicuousness especially when dressed in the fashion followed by japanese girls and with the leaving off of the use of cosmetics and the spending of several hours a day in the flower-garden even her pallid complexion suffered rapid change it was about a fortnight before professor oshima returned from tokyo upon his arrival ethel at once pleaded with him to be sent to america but the scientist slowly shook his head it is too late he said there's going to be a war thus it happened that ethel calvert was retained in the professor's family as a sort of english tutor to his children and introduced as a relative of his wife and no one suspected that she was one of the hated americans the trouble between japan and the united states dated back to the early part of the century it was deep-seated and bitter and not only the culmination of a rivalry between the leading nations of the great races of mankind but a rivalry between two great ideas or policies that grew out in opposite directions from the age of unprecedented mechanical and scientific progress that marked the dawn of the twentieth century the pages of history had been turned rapidly in those years the united states long known as the richest country had also become the most populous nation of the caucasian world and wealth and population had made her vain but with all her material glory there was not strength in american sinews nor endurance in her lungs nor vigor in the product of her loins her people were herded together in great cities where they slept in gigantic apartment houses like mud-swallows in a sand-bank they overate of artificial food that was made in great factories they overdressed with tight-fitting unsanitary clothing made by the sweated labor of the diseased and destitute they overdrank of old liquors born of ancient ignorance and of new concoctions born of prostituted science they smoked and perfumed and doped with chemicals and cosmetics the supposed virtues of which were blazoned forth on earth and sky day and night 
the wealth of the united states was enormous yet it was chiefly in the hands of the few the laborers went forth from their rookeries by subway and monorail and served their ships in the mills of industry in turn others took their places and the mills ground night and day even the farmlands had been largely taken over by corporate control crops on the plains were planted with power machinery the rough lands had all been converted into forests or game preserves for the rich agriculture had been developed as a science but not as a husbandry the forcing system had been generally applied to plants and animals wonder-working nitrogenous fertilizers made at niagara and by the wave motors of the coast made all vegetation to grow with artificial luxury corn-fed hogs and the rotund carcasses of stall-fed cattle were produced on mammoth ranches for the edification of mankind and fowl were hatched by the billions in huge incubators and the chicks reared and slaughtered with scarcely a touch of a human hand and all this was under the control of concentrated business organization the old sturdy wasteful farmer class had gone out of existence only the rich who owned aeroplanes could afford to live in the country the poor had been forced to the cities where they could be sheltered en masse and fed as it were by machinery new york had a population of twenty-three millions manhattan island had been extended by filling in the shallows of the bay until the battery reached almost to staten island the aeroplane stations that topped her skyscrapers stood many of them a quarter of a mile from the ground as the materially greatest nation in the world the united states had an enormous national patriotism based on vanity the larger patriotism for humanity was only known in the prattle of her preachers and idealists america was the land of liberty and liberty had come to mean the right to disregard the rights of others in japan too there had been changes but japan had received the gifts of science in a far different spirit with her science had been made to serve the more ultimate needs of the race rather than the insane demand for luxuries the japanese had applied to the human species the scientific principles of heredity nutrition and physical development which in america had been confined to plants and animals the old spirit of japanese patriotism had grown into a semi-religious worship of racial fitness and a moral pride developed which eulogized the sacrifice of the liberties of the individual to the larger needs of the people legal restrictions on the follies of fashion in dress and food the prohibition of alcohol and narcotics the restriction of unwise marriages and the punishments of immorality were stoically accepted not as the blue laws of religious fanaticism but as requisites of racial progress and a mark of patriotism and while japan showed no signs of the extravagant wealth seen in america she was far from being poor she had gained little from centralized and artificial industry but she had wasted less in insane competition and riotous luxury 
but in Japanese life there was one unsolved problem. That was her food supply. Intensive culture would do wonders, and the just administration of wealth and the physical efficiency of her people had eliminated the waste of supporting the non-productive, but an acre is but a small piece of land at most, and Japan had long since passed the point where the number of her people exceeded the number of her acres. A quarter of an acre would produce enough grain and coarse vegetables to keep a man alive, but the Japanese wanted eggs and fruit and milk for their children, and they wanted cherry trees and chrysanthemums, lotus ponds and shady gardens with little waterfalls. Now, if the low birth rate that had resulted when the examinations for parenthood were first enforced had continued, Japan would not have been so crowded. But after the first generation of marriage restriction, the percentage of those who reached the legal standard of fitness was naturally increased. The scientists and officials had from time to time considered the advisability of increasing the restrictions. And yet, why should they? The Japanese people had submitted to the prohibition of the marriage of the unfit, but they loved children, and with their virile outdoor life, the instinct of procreation was strong within them. True, the assignable lands in Japan continued to grow smaller, but what reason was there for stifling the reproductive instincts of a vigorous people in a great unused world, half populated by a degenerate humanity? So Japan was land-hungry, not for lands to conquer, as of old, nor yet for lands to exploit commercially, but for food and soil and breathing space for her children. Among opponents of Japanese racial expansion, the United States was the greatest offender. Japanese immigration had long since been forbidden by the United States, and American diplomats had more recently been instrumental in bringing about an agreement among the powers of Europe by which all outlets were locked against the overflowing stream of Asiatic population. Indeed, America called Japan the Yellow Peril, and with her own prejudices to maintain her institutions of graft and exploitations to fatten her luxury-loving lords and her laborers to appease, she was in mortal terror of the simple efficiency of the Japanese people who had taken the laws of nature into their own hands and shaped human evolution by human reason." As Commodore Perry had forced the open door of commerce upon Japan a century before, so Japan decided to force upon America the acknowledgment of any human being's right to live in any land on earth. She had tried first by peaceful means to secure these ends, but failing here and driven on by the lash of her own necessity— Japan had come to feel that force alone could break the clannish resistance of the Anglo-Saxon, who, having gone into the four corners of the earth and forced upon the world his language, commerce, and customs, now refused to receive ideas or citizens in return. And thus it came to pass that the West and the East were in the clutch of the war god. 
no one knew just what the war would be like for the wars of the last century had been bluffing bulldozing affairs concerning trade agreements or latin american revolutions there had been no great clash of great ideas and great peoples the harbors of the world were filled with huge floating flat-topped battleships within the capacious interiors of which were packed the parts of aeroplanes as were the soldiers of the grecian army in their wooden horse at troy for assembling and launching them but the engines of warfare which men had repeatedly claimed would make war so terrible as to end war had failed to fulfil anticipations the means of defense and the rules of the game had kept pace with the means of destruction. The flat tops of the warships, which served as alighting platforms for friendly planes, were heavily armored against missiles dropped from unfriendly ones. The explosion of a bomb on top of a plate of steel is a rather tame affair, and guns sufficient to penetrate armor plate could not be carried on aircraft the big guns of battleships which had for a time grown bigger and bigger had now gone quite out of use for the coming of the armored top had been followed by the toadstool warship which had a roof like an inverted saucer and was provided with water chambers the opening of the traps of which caused a sudden sinking of the vessel under the eave dipped beneath the water level and left exposed only the sloping roof from which the heaviest shot would glance like a bullet from the frozen surface of a pond the first two years of war dragged on in the pacific american grain was of course cut off from japan and the government authorities ordered the people to plow up their flower gardens and plant food crops the americans had too much territory to protect to take the offensive and their pacific fleet lay close to manila where with the help of land aviation forces they hoped to hold the possession of the islands which according to the popular american view was supposed to be the prize for which the japanese had gone to war the test of the actual warfare proved several things upon which mankind had long been in doubt one of these was that with all the expert mechanism that science and invention had supplied the personal equation of the man could not be eliminated aviation increased the human element in warfare to shoot straight requires calm nerves but to fly straight requires also agility and endurance the american aeroplanes were made of steel and aluminum and when they hit the water they sank like lead but the japanese planes were made of silk and bamboo and their engines were built with multiple compartment air tanks and after a battle the japanese picked up the floating engines and placed them ready to use in inexpensive new planes in the nineteenth month of the war manila surrendered and the emblem of the rising sun was hoisted throughout the philippine islands the remnant of the american fleet retreated across the pacific and the world supposed that the war was over but japan refused the american proposals of peace which conceded them the philippines unless the united states be also opened to universal immigration and so it was that when japan in addition to accepting the philippines demanded the right to settle her cheap labor in the united states the american authorities cut short the peace negotiation and began concentrating troops and battleships along the pacific coast 
in fear of an invasion of California. With Ethel Calvert's adoption into Professor Oshima's family, there came a great change in her life. At first, she accepted Japanese food and Japanese clothes, as the old-time prisoner accepted stripes and bread and water. But her captivity proved less repulsive than she expected, and she was soon confessing to herself that there was much good in Japanese life. Professor and Madame Oshima were not talkative on general topics, but the books on the shelves of the professor's library proved a godsend to the awakening mind of the young woman. Indeed, after a mental diet of French and English fiction upon which Ethel had been reared, the works on science and humaniculture, the dreams of universal brotherhood, the epics of a race in its conquests of disease and poverty, were as meat and drink to her eager, hungry mind. As the war went on, the horror of it all grew upon her. She read Hauke's America. She didn't believe it all, but she realized that most of it was true. She wondered why her people were fighting to keep out the Japanese. She marveled that the Japanese who had adopted such lofty ideals of race culture could find the heart to go to war. She wished she might be free to go to the government officials at Tokyo and Washington to show them the folly of it all. Surely, if the American statesmen understood Japanese ideals and the superiority of their habits and customs for the production of happy human beings, they would never have waged war to keep them out of the States. In three days we leave Japan, said Professor Oshima, as he sat down to dinner one evening in the early part of April, 1960. All, asked Komaru the professor's secretary. "'We four, replied Oshima, indicating those at the table. "'The children will stay with my mother. I'll need your assistance. And as for Miss Ethel, she cannot well stay here. So I have had you two listed. Although it's a little irregular, I am sure it will not be questioned, for I know more about American soils than any other man in Japan.' Ethel glanced apprehensively at Komoru. She had never quite understood her own attitude toward that taciturn young Japanese, whom she had seen daily for two years, without hardly making his acquaintance. She admired him, and yet she feared him. Professor Oshima was saying that she had been listed with Komoru for some great journey. What did it mean? What could she do? Again she looked up at the secretary, but far from seeing any trace of scheme or plot in his enigmatical countenance, she found him to be considering the situation with the same equanimity with which he would have recorded the calcium content of a soil sample. As for Professor and Madame Oshima, they seemed equally unruffled about the proposed journey, and not at all inclined to elucidate the mystery." Experience had taught the younger woman that when information was not offered, it was unwise to ask questions. So when the professor busied himself with much ransacking of his pamphlets and papers, and his wife became equally occupied with overhauling the family wardrobe and getting the children off to their grandmothers, Ethel accepted unquestionably the statement that she would be limited to twenty kilograms of clothing and ten kilograms of other personal effects, and lent assistance as best she could to the enterprise in hand. 
on the third day the little party with their light luggage boarded a train for hakodate at which point they arrived at noon hurrying along the docks among others burdened like themselves they came to a great low-lying turtle-topped warship and passing down a gangway entered the brilliantly lighted interior the constant flood of new passengers came not in mixed and motley groups as the ordinary crowd of passengers but by two male and female as the unclean beasts into the ark and they were all young in years and athletic in frame the very cream and flower of the race late that evening the vessel steamed out of port and during the next two days was joined by a host of other warcraft and the great squadron moved in orderly procession to the eastward one point that ethel soon discovered was that in addition to being excellent physical specimens all the men and many of the women were proficient as aviators of these facts life on board bore ample evidence for the great fan-ventilated gymnasium was the most conspicuous part of the ship's equipment and here in regular drills and in free-willed disportive exercise those on board kept themselves from stagnation during the idleness of the voyage into this gymnasium work ethel entered with great gusto for there was a revelation in the discovery of her own physical capabilities that surprised and fascinated her in the other chief interest of her fellow-passengers ethel was an apt pupil for though woefully ignorant of aviation she was eager to learn she spent many hours in the company of professor or madame oshima studying aeroplane construction and operation from the displayed mechanisms on board in fact they found the great roomy hold of the ship was packed with aeroplane parts small gasoline turbines were stored in crates by the hundreds also wings and rudders knocked down and laid flat against each other and still lower down in the framework of the floating palace were vast stores of gasoline at the end of two weeks the japanese squadron was in latitude thirty four degrees north longitude one hundred twenty five degrees west and headed directly for the los angeles district of southern california the richest and most densely populated area of the united states one evening just at dark after they had been in sight of the american aerial scouts all day the japanese fleet changed its course and turned sharply to the southward now panama was six days steaming from los angeles and less than three days from new orleans so the authorities at washington ordered all warships and available soldiers on the gulf coast to embark for the isthmus meanwhile there was much going on beneath the armor plate of the japanese transports and on the fourth day of their southward movement the great trap-doors were swung open and aeroplane parts were run out on the tramways the planes rapidly set up by skilled workmen and firmly hooked to the floor above and below deck they stood in great rows like lines of automobiles in a garage towards sundown the forward planes were manned and in quick succession shot down the runways and took to the air ethel and her companions were below at the time and hardly knew what was going on their luggage had been taken up some time ago except for an extra chemo which they had been ordered to put on in their turn they were now called out and ordered to go above 
that is the names of the men were called and ethel knew that she was listed as madame komoru a thing that made her shiver every time it was brought to her attention an exclamation or astonishment escaped the lips of the more impulsive american girl as she came on deck for as far as the eye could see the grey flat tops of the war vessels were covered with the drab winged planes while every few seconds a plane shot into the air and joined an endless winged line that stretched away to the northeast komaru eighty five oshima eighty six the intent of that command was clear and ethel was soon settled immediately behind the young secretary in the little bamboo car of a japanese plane of war the propellers started with a shrill musical hum they raced down the runway dipped for a second toward the water rose and sailed swiftly up and on toward the dark line of mexico that lay in the evening shadow cast by the curved surface of the pacific ocean part two synopsis of previous instalment in the year nineteen hundred fifty eight ethel calvert a daughter of an american grain merchant residing in japan because of her father's death in an anti-foreign riot is forced to take refuge with madame oshima the french wife of a japanese scientist she becomes accustomed to the mode of living followed by the japanese and is finally persuaded to adopt the costume of the land of her exile war is declared between japan and the united states and professor oshima and komaru his secretary together with madame oshima and ethel calvert sail for united states in a japanese war vessel when near the pacific coast the many men and women who have been passengers on the vessel leave the ship by means of aeroplanes and sail eastwardly over southern california the air cut by ethel's face at a ninety-mile gait and she gripped nervously at the handrails of the car then regaining confidence she began to drink in the novel view about her ahead were the drab-winged aeroplanes growing smaller and smaller until they became mere specks against the darkening sky she turned to the rear and watched the myriads of humans like birds rising from the transports that still lay in the sunshine there were literally thousands of them she wondered if human eyes had ever before witnessed so marvellous a sight they had come over the mainland of mexico now and were flying at a height of about half a mile shrouded in the tropical twilight the landscape below was dimly discernible as the darkness came on ethel discovered that a small light glowed from the side of the car in front of the driver gripping the handrail she made bold to raise herself and stopping beneath the searchlight and machine-gun that hung one beneath the other on swivels in the centre of the framework she peered forward over komaru's shoulder the taciturn steersman turned and smiled but said nothing ethel noted carefully the equipment of the driver's box it was a duplicate throughout of the dummy steering gear with which she had practised in the ship's gymnasium 
one conspicuous addition however was an object illuminated by the small glow-lamp that had attracted her attention this proved to be a chart or map mounted at either end on short rollers as the girl watched it she perceived that it moved slowly a red line was drawn across the map and hovering over this was the tip of a metal pointer a compass and a watch were mounted at one side of the chart case ethel watched the chart creep back on its rollers and reasoned that the pointer indicated the location of the aeroplane she wondered how the movement of the chart was regulated with that of the plane finally she decided to ask komaru by the landmarks and the time he said do you see that blue coming in on the northeast corner of the map yes well watch it after a few minutes of waiting the words gulf of mexico rolled out upon the chart why that can't be said ethel we just left the pacific ocean but we have crossed the isthmus of tehuantepec replied komaru it is only a hundred miles wide his companion looked over the side of the car and to the front and to the right she could see by the perfectly flat horizon that they were approaching water the map is unrolling too fast said komaru as the pointer stood over the edge of the indicated water and he pushed back the little lever on the clock mechanism that rolled the chart we have a little headwind he added ethel resumed her seat and sat musing for a half hour or so komaru looked around and called to her look over to your left he said the lights of vera cruz we are making better time now he added again adjusting the regulator on the clockwork the driver contemplated his compass carefully and shifted his course a few points to the right ethel settled in her bamboo cage and pulled her aviation cap down tightly to shield her face and ears from the wind pressure for hours they sat so the girl's heart throbbing with awe wonder and fear the man unemotional and silent a steady firm hand on the wheel his feet on the engine controls and his goggled eyes glancing critically at compass or watch or out into the starlit waste of the night disturbed only by the whirl and shadow of other planes which with varying speed passed or were passed as the aerial host rushed onward there were only small tail lights one above and one below the main plane to warn following drivers against collision with her head bent low upon her knees ethel at length fell into a doze she was aroused by komaru's calling and straightening up with a start she arose and leaned forward over the driver komaru was looking intently at the scroll chart in a moment she designed the cause of his interest for there had rolled across the forward surface of the chart the outline of a coast in the far left-hand corner was marked the city of galveston and to the right was the sabine river that forms the boundary between texas and louisiana ethel raised her eyes from the map and looked far out to the northwest sure enough she discerned the lights of a city at the point where galveston was indicated by the chart how far have we come she asked in astonishment 
Eight hundred miles, replied Kamaru. See, it is nearly two-thirty. The first men with the faster planes were to arrive at one o'clock. A little later they passed over the dimly discernible coastline, some thirty or forty miles to the east of Galveston. Komaru carefully consulted his compass, watch, and aneroid, and made a slight change in his course. "'Where do we land?' asked the girl. Komaru steadied the wheel with one hand, and reaching into the breast pocket of his aviator's jacket, he produced a little document-like roll. "'These are the orders,' he explained, and asked Ethel to spread out the papers on the chart case. The instruction read— fly twenty-eight minutes beyond the coastline which will place you ten or twenty miles northwest of the town of beaumont where a fire of some sort will be lighted about three a m when you alight locate one or more farmhouses and attach one of the enclosed notices to the door this done fly toward the beaumont signal fire and assist in subduing the town and capturing all petroleum works in the region at six a m if petroleum works are safe, follow the lead of the red plane and fly northwest as far as Fort Worth, returning by nightfall to oil region. Ethel read the paper over and over as she held it down out of the wind by the dim glow lamp. She wanted to ask questions. She wondered what was expected of her. She wondered again as to what was expected of the entire invasion and why the women had been brought along but her questions did not find verbal expression, for she had schooled herself to await developments. The roller chart had now come to a stop, and showed the red line that marked their course, terminating in a cross to the northwest of the town of Beaumont. Komaru tilted the plane downward, and flew for a time near the earth. Then, checking the speed, he ran it lightly aground in an open field in a little distance from a clump of buildings. The driver got out and stretched his cramped limbs. Taking a hand-glow lamp, he ran carefully over the mechanism of the plane. Then he opened a locker and took out two small magazine pistols. One he handed to Ethel. "'Don't use it,' he said, "'until you have to.' "'Will you go with me?' he asked. "'To tack the poster, or will you stay with the plane?' "'I'll stay here.' she replied. Komaru walked off rapidly towards the house. Presently the stillness was interrupted by the vociferous barking of a dog. Then there was a sound of a someone picking a taut wire, and the voice of the dog curdled in a final yelp. In a few minutes Komaru was back. "'Dogs are no good,' he said. "'They produce nothing but noise.' "'Will you kindly get aboard, Miss Ethel? There is much to do.' Ethel obeyed. Meanwhile, Komaru inspected the surface of the ground for a few yards in front of the plane. Returning, he climbed into a seat and started the engine. They arose without mishap. Within a mile or two, Komaru picked out another farmhouse and made a landing nearby. "'I will go with you this time.' said Ethel courageously. Approaching an American residence, Ethel suddenly found herself conscious of the fact that she was dressed in a most unladylike Japanese chemo. 
for a moment the larger sentiments of the occasion were replaced by the womanly query what will people say then she laughed inwardly at the absurdity of her thought Comaru produced the roll from his pocket and unwound a small cloth poster then he fastened to the door jam by pressing in the thumb-tacks that were sewed in the hem then noting another white blotch on the opposite side of the door he carefully shielded his lamp and made a light it was a duplicate of the notice he had just fastened up and read warning two hundred thousand japanese have invaded texas and are desirous of possessing your property you are respectfully requested to depart immediately and apply to your government for property elsewhere all buildings not vacated within twenty-four hours will be promptly burned unless displaying a flag truce for sufficient reason kindly cooperate with us in avoiding bloodshed signed the japanese people we were late said komaru as they walked back toward the plain two hundred thousand he mused what you call bluff i guess it's growing light said ethel as they reached the plain yes a little replied komaru as he walked around to the front an ugly ditch he said we shall have to use the helicopter taking his seat he threw down a lever and what had appeared to be two small superimposed planes above the main plane assumed the form of flat screws letting the engine gain full headway komaru threw the clutch on this shafting and the vertical screws started revolving in opposite directions with a great downward rush of air the whole apparatus tilted a bit and then slowly but steadily arose when they had reached altitude of a hundred feet or so the driver shifted the power to the quieter horizontal propeller and the plane sidled off like an eagle dropping from a crag tilting the plane upward komaru circled for altitude presently he called back over his shoulder saying that he saw the signal fire at beaumont at the same time heading the plane in that direction as the dawn began to break in the east the occasional passing lights of flying planes became less bright and soon the planes themselves stood out against the sky like shadows and then the whole majestic train of aerial invaders became visible as they poured over the southern horizon a never-ending stream komaru and ethel landed in a meadow already well filled with planes and following the others hurried along toward the town there had been some fighting in the streets and a few buildings were burning walking along to the main street of the town they came upon a crowd of japanese who were collected in front of a building from which the contents were being dragged hastily what is it asked komaru of one of the men hardware store replied the other we've rifled all of them for the weapons and explosives where are all the people asked ethel the americans are they killed or captured they are at home in their houses answered the man who seemed well posted i was with the first squad to arrive we captured the policeman and took the telephone switchboard 
japanese operators are in there now they have called up everyone in town and explained the situation and advised the people to stay indoors telling them that every house would be burned from which people emerged or shots were fired the operators are working on the rural numbers yet we hold the telegraph also and are sending out exaggerated reports of the size of the japanese invasion a man wearing a blue sash came hurrying up he stopped before the group at the hardware store and gestured for silence the town is well in hand he said and only those of you who are detailed here as guards need remain longer the others will get back to their planes and await the rise of their designated leaders for the flights of the day come said komaru to his companion but ethel did not move her mind was racked with perplexity here she was in a city of her own people why should she continue to accompany this young japanese whom despite his gentlemanly conduct she instinctively feared yet what else could she do she was dressed in the peculiar attire of the invaders and would certainly have trouble in convincing an american of her identity i must ask you to hurry said komaru as the others moved off with an effort ethel gathered her wavering emotions in hand and went with him she must go she reasoned it were well not to arouse komaru's suspicion of her loyalty a few minutes later they were again in the air following the lead of a plane with bright red wings the flagship as it were of the group in a half hour the expedition was approaching houston coming over the city the leader circled high and waited until his followers were better massed are we going to attack the town inquired ethel as komaru asked her for the water bottle oh no he replied nothing of the sort we are simply bluffing there are a number of expeditions going out to-day we must make the appearance of a great invasion how many planes are there all told komaru smiled not so many he said but how many persisted ethel fifteen thousand maybe komaru replied to invade a country with nearly two hundred million inhabitants we will surely all be killed komaru smiled by sheer force of numbers explained ethel wait and see replied her enigmatical companion for hours the little aerial squadron sailed through the balmy air of texas they passed over austin and waco and fort worth and dallas they turned eastward and passed over texarkana and thence south to impress the people of shreveport the excitement evinced in the towns increased as the news of their flight was wired ahead they were frequently shot at by groups of excited citizens or occasional companies of militia but at the height and speed at which they were flying the bullets went wide one plane was lost something must have snapped it doubled up and went tumbling downward like a wounded pigeon the sun was dropping toward the western horizon the invaders had been flying for ten hours they had been without food or sleep for thirty-six hours save for the brief relaxation of the morning 
Komaru had not taken his hands from the steering wheel nor his foot from the engine control since the previous sunset in the Bay of Tuantepec. As they passed near other plains, Ethel noted that in many cases the women were driving. Notwithstanding her dislike for him, the girl found herself wishing that she could relieve Komaru. She pondered over his weight and sea, and began to discern a new possibility in an invasion of thirty thousand Japanese. She tried to imagine one of the society favorites of her Chicago girlhood sitting in front of her driving that plane. She remembered distinctly that aeroplane racing was a part of the diversion of such men, and that five or six hours of driving was considered quite a feat. The more she considered the man before her, the more she marveled at his powers. She confessed he interested her. She wondered why she disliked him. The only answer that seemed acceptable was that he was not her kind. Towards dusk they hove in sight of the derricks of the Beaumont oil region. The leader with the red plane descended in a large meadow. Comaru was well to the front, and brought his plane to earth a few meters from the red wings. The man in the flag plane, who had that day led them over a thousand miles and a score of cities, got out and stretched himself. With an exclamation of joyful surprise, Ethel recognized that he was Professor Oshima. The Japanese camped where they were for the night. The wings of the planes were guyed to the ground with cordage and little steel stakes. Beneath such improvised tents, the tired aerial cavalrymen rolled themselves in their sleeping blankets, and for twelve hours the camp was as quiet as a graveyard. That day had been a great day in history. It was the first consequential aerial invasion that the world had ever known. While the arrivals of the morning had been circling in fear-inspiring flights above the neighboring states, the later starters from the Japanese squadron had continued to arrive in the oil regions. Like migrating birds, they settled down over the rich fields and grazing lands of that wonderful strip of flat, black-soiled prairie that stretches westward from the south center of Louisiana until it emerges into the great semi-arid cattle plains of southern Texas. The region, though one of the richest in the United States, was but sparsely settled. Save for the few thousand white laborers who were supported by the oil industry, the whole resident population were Negroes, who were worked under imported white foremen in the rice and truck lands of the region. The Negroes were panic-stricken by the Japanese invasion and made practically no resistance. In two or three days, the country for a 40-mile radius around Beaumont was cleared of Americans, and practically the entire oil region of Texas, with its vast storage tanks at Port Arthur on the Sabine River, were in the hands of the invaders. There were not ten regiments of American soldiers within five hundred miles. The great mass of the American army had been rushed weeks before to Southern California, and the remnant left in the Gulf region had more recently been hastened to Panama. In fact, the American squadron had steamed into Colon on the very morning the Japanese alighted on Texas soil. On the second morning of their arrival, Japanese officials circling above the captured region 
roughly allotted the land to captains under whose leadership were a hundred planes each the captains then assigned each couple places to stake their plane which were located a hundred meters apart allowing to each about two and a half acres of land professor oshima and komaru as soil chemists were constantly on the go making studies of the land and advising with the other experts as to the crops to plant and the methods of tillage for the various locations in the cotton lands where ethel and her associates were located the soil was immediately put to a fuller use the cotton plants were thinned and pruned and between the rows quick-growing vegetables were planted elsewhere the great pastures were broken up with captured kerosene-driven gang ploughs and by dint of hard labour the sod was quickly reduced to a fit state for intensive cultivation the outside work of the professor and his secretary threw ethel altogether in the company of madame oshima for this fact she was very grateful as her aversion to komaru to whom she was nominally bound grew more and more a source of worry and fear so the two women of aryan blood worked together in the cotton-field side by side with the orientals worked and waited and wondered what was a wing in the surrounding world the gasoline wagons came around and refilled the fuel tanks of the planes mechanics inspected the engines carefully and replaced defective parts the rice cakes and soyu brought from japan had been replaced by a diet of wheat and maize products and fresh fruits and vegetables taken from the captured stores and gardens such captured foods however had all been inspected by the dietitians, and those of doubtful wholesomeness destroyed or placed under lock and key to be used only as a last resort thus weeks passed the green things of japanese planting had poked their tender shoots through the black american soil there had been no fighting except in few cases where a company of foolhardy militia or a local posse had tried to attack the japanese outposts american aeroplanes had wisely stayed away but the fight was yet to come the federal government had recalled its ships from panama and was bringing back the soldiers from california on the great flat prairie between galveston and houston a mighty military camp was established aeroplane sheds were erected and repair shops built long lines of army tents were pitched in close proximity army canteens were established that the thirsty soldiers might get pure liquor and good tobacco and a few rods away over the line other grog shops were opened wherein sold similar goods not so guaranteed gambling sharks arrived and set up shell games and bedraggled prostitutes outcasts from urban centres of debauchery came and camped nearby and made night hideous with their obscene revelry so the american soldier prepared for battle against the enemy who fifty miles away slept undisturbed in the midst of gardens beneath the wings of their aeroplanes never since roman phalanx moved against the hordes of disorganized barbarians had such extremes of method in warfare been pitted against each other indeed it is doubtful if the invasion of the japanese should be called war at all 
they were not bloodthirsty in fact the japanese invaders had sent word to the american government asserting their peaceful intentions if they were unmolested though threatening dire vengeance by firing cities and poisoning water supplies if they were attacked madame oshima shook her head such talk is only pretense she said the japanese intend to live in america and would never so embitter the people and it will not be necessary ethel was in doubt she pictured the japanese planes flying above the unprotected inland cities dropping conflagration bombs upon shingled roof or casts of prussic acid into open reservoirs she wished she were out of it all she wanted to escape and yet she knew not how the americans made no hasty attacks they feared the threats of the japanese and awaited the gathering of many hundred thousand soldiers at the end of four weeks the american army was spread in a giant semicircle surrounding the japanese encampment from coast to coast along the gulf coast was also a line of american battleships so that the japanese encampment was entirely surrounded with an almost continuous line of aeroplane destroying guns all preparations were at last complete and with cavalry beneath and aeroplanes above the american strategists planned a dash across the japanese territory with the belief that the outlying lines of artillery would bring to earth those that succeeded in getting into the air one evening at the hour of twilight messengers passed rapidly among the japanese distributing maps and orders to prepare for flight late that night their possessions made ready for flight komaru and ethel sat with professor and madame oshima beneath the latter's plane our scouts have come to the conclusion said oshima that a cavalry attack is to be expected in the early morning so our plan is for a signal plane to rise at two o'clock directly over the centre of our territory it will carry a bright yellow light beginning with the outlying groups our forces are to fly toward the light rising as they go attaining an altitude of two miles they are thence to fly due north as our maps show we will suffer some loss but two miles high and at night i guess american gunners will not inflict great damage ethel shuddered do you think the american aviators will follow us asked komaru that depends replied the older man upon the reception we give them we have them outnumbered they carry men gunners said madame oshima so said the professor but shooting from an aeroplane depends not so much upon the gunner as upon the steersman their planes wobble the metal framework is too stiff it doesn't yield to the air pressure along such lines the conversation continued for an hour or so neither the men nor madame oshima seemed the least bit excited over the prospects but ethel striving to keep up external appearances was inwardly torn with warring emotions making an excuse of wishing to look for something among her luggage the girl finally escaped and walked quickly toward the other plane 
but instead of stopping she passed by and continued down between the rows of cotton avoiding as much as possible the lights that dotted the field about her oh god she repeated under her breath oh god i can't go i won't go for some time she walked on briskly trying to calm her feverish mind and reason out a sane course of procedure she was passing thus where the lights of two planes glowed fifty metres at either side when she stumbled heavily over some dark object between the cotton rows she turned to see what it was and bending forward discerned in the starlight the body of a man she started to run then fearing pursuit the more checked her speed as she did so someone grasped her arm and a heavy hand was clapped over her mouth keep quiet commanded her captor hoarsely in another instant he had bent her back over his knee and thrown her or rather dropped her for she did not resist upon the soft earth beneath if you make a sound i'll have to shoot he said resting a heavy knee upon her chest and clasping her slender wrist in a vice-like grip of a single hand the girl breathed heavily the man reached toward his hip pocket and drawing forth a bright metallic object held it close to her face her breath stopped short then a flood of light struck her full in the eyes as her captor pressed the button of his flash lamp god a woman the man gasped the exclamation and voice were clearly not japanese ethel felt the grip loosen from her wrists and the weight shift from her chest you're no japanese he said under his breath at the same time letting the glowing flash lamp fall from his hand presently ethel raised her head and reached for the lamp where it lay wasting its rays against the black soil she now turned the glow on the other and saw kneeling beside her a young man in american clothes he was hatless and coatless and his soft grey shirt was torn and mud bespattered a massive head of uncombed hair crowned a handsome forehead but the face beneath was marred by a stubby growth of beard who are you whispered ethel finding her voice put out the light he commanded reaching forward to take it from her who are you he asked reversing the query as they were again in darkness i'm a girl said ethel the man laughed softly i'm not he said ethel drew herself into a sitting posture which side of this war are you on she asked the man was afraid to commit himself then a happy thought struck him the same side that you are he answered diplomatically it was ethel's turn to smile you are an american she ventured at length yes he said so are you yes then why are you wearing japanese clothes because she said hesitatingly i haven't any others for some minutes he said nothing 
are you going to give the alarm of my presence he asked at length no then i'll go he said rising from his knees but still stooping he made off rapidly down the cotton row ethel breathed deeply confused thoughts flashed through her mind she would not return to go with komaru in her japanese garb she feared the early morning sweep of american cavalry but to the man who had just left her why could she not explain without further debate she arose and at top speed ran after the retreating figure the next installment of this absorbing tale will appear in the september issue of physical culture it tells of how the japanese attempt to obtain control of the united states through scientific measures rather than barbarous warfare and is wonderfully interesting and readable don't miss it part three synopsis in the year of nineteen fifty-eight ethel calvert a daughter of an american grain merchant residing in japan because of her father's death in an anti-foreign riot is forced to take refuge with madame oshima the french wife of a japanese scientist she becomes accustomed to the land and mode of living followed by the japanese and is finally persuaded to adopt the costume of the land of her exile war is declared between japan and the united states and professor oshima and komaru his secretary together with madame oshima and ethel calvert sail for the united states in a japanese war vessel when near the pacific coast the many men and women who have been passengers on the vessel leave the ship by means of aeroplanes and sail eastwardly toward texas where they establish plantations and conduct a desultory warfare by aeroplanes with united states troops while working in the fields ethel discovers a young american in concealment he warns her to keep silent and immediately runs away in a few minutes ethel had caught up with the man who more cautiously ran before her checking her speed she followed silently for a half mile she pursued him thus he came to the end of the field and dodged into the thicket of bushes that lined the fence row he moved more slowly now and she followed by sound rather than by sight at length they came to where a brook ran at right angles to the fence row the man stopped and crawled under the barbed wire fence and came out on the turnpike that ran alongside ethel peering out from the bushes saw him walk boldly forward and stand upon the end of the stone culvert that conducted the brook beneath the roadway for a moment only he remained so and then clambered quickly down at the end of the arch and disappeared in the darkness beneath she heard a foot splash in the water and then all was quiet save the gurgle of the stream climbing over the fence she top ran forward upon the culvert she listened and looked toward either end resolved to call him if he emerged as she stood waiting she saw the yellow signal light rise in spirals higher and higher and then circle slowly in one location 
A few minutes later, the dim tail-lights of the plains came up out of the horizon and flew towards the signal light. After a half-hour of waiting, she boldly resolved to enter the hiding-place of the man she had followed. Cautiously feeling her way, she clambered down over the end of the culvert and peered into its black archway. At first, dimly, and then, with brighter flash, she saw a light within, creeping slowly forward, wading in the stream and stumbling over rough blocks of stone, she made toward the light. Midway the passage, the side wall of the culvert had fallen, or been torn down, and there, in a little damp clay nook, sitting hunched upon a rock, was the silhouette of the unshaven man. Beyond him glowed the dim light, and by its faint rays he was hurriedly writing in a notebook. With a start he became aware of her presence, and turned the flashlight upon her. "'I followed you,' she stammered. "'I want to explain. I'm an American girl, captive among the Japanese.' He stared at her quizzically in the dim light. "'I ran from you,' he said. "'Because I was afraid to trust you. "'There are a number of Europeans among the Japanese forces. "'I couldn't know that you wouldn't have given the alarm. "'And for one man to run from fifty thousand isn't cowardice. "'It's common sense, even bravery, perhaps, when there's a cause at stake.' "'I understand,' replied the girl. "'Won't you be seated?' he said, arising and offering his place on the rock. She accepted, and he asked her for more of her story. In reply, she told him whom she was, and related, as briefly as she could, the incidents of her life that accounted for her peculiar predicament. "'I suppose I owe you something of an explanation, too,' he said, when she had finished. "'My name is Winslow, Stanley Winslow,' I am, or at least was, the editor of The Regenerationist. Do you know what that is? Ethel confessed that she did not. Perhaps I flatter myself, but then I suppose you have had no chance to keep up on American affairs. Just then a crash, followed by a whirring, clattering noise, broke in above the sound of the man's voice and the gurgle of the brook running through their hiding-place. "'What's that?' Winslow exclaimed, starting towards the end of the culvert. Ethel followed him. Before they reached the open, the trees in front of them were lit up by the lurid light of a fire. Beside the road a hundred yards away was the crumpled mass of a metallic aeroplane. The gasoline tank had burst open and was blazing furiously. "'Americans,' said Winslow, "'let's see if the crew are dead.' The gasoline had largely spent itself by the time they reached the plane. Poking about in the crumbled debris, they found the driver impaled upon a lever that protruded from his back. "'I wonder what granted her,' mused Winslow, as he inspected the dead man with his flash-lamp. "'Oh, here we are. Good shooting, that,' he added, pointing with his lamp to a soggy hole in the side of the man's head. "'I guess they're at it,' he said, pressing out his light and turning his eyes skyward. 
the woman speechless followed his gaze across the sky flashed here and there brilliant beams of searchlights but far more numerous were the swiftly moving star-like tail-lights of the japanese planes now and again they heard the crackling of machine-guns occasionally the burr of a disordered propeller and once the faint call of a human voice look said ethel pointing to the southward see that brilliant yellow light it's the japanese signal plane they are all to fly in towards it and then soaring high will escape over the american lines the lines are a joke returned winslow it's plain against plain and the japs will get the best of it or at least they'll get away which is all they want they're going to dakota where five trainloads of gasoline will be setting on a siding waiting to be captured we printed the story ten days ago though the administration papers hooted at the idea as they walked back toward the culvert ethel stumbled over something in the roadway she asked for the light and discovered to her horror that she was standing in the midst of the remnants of a man who had been spattered over the hard macadam of the turnpike ugh take me away she shuddered averting her eyes and running toward the stream the gunner fell out of the plane when she lurched i guess commented winslow to himself examining the shreds of clothing attached to the mangled remains beneath him for some reason winslow did not immediately follow the girl but went back and looked over the wrecked plane again he removed the magazine pistol from the impaled man's pocket and searched about in the locker until he found a supply of cartridges the sky was beginning to brighten from approaching dawn now and the searchlight flashes were less brilliant winslow stood gazing upward until the forms of the lower flying planes became visible suddenly he saw a disabled plane come somersaulting out of the air and fall into a field quarter of a mile away evidently there were explosive aboard for a shower of flame smoke and splinters arose where she fell the onlooking man hopped over the fence and ran toward the spot there was little to be seen a mere ragged hole in the sod as he unconcernedly walked back he passed at intervals a propeller blade sticking upright in the soil a broken can of rice cakes and a woman's hand the dawn had now so far progressed that the observer could see some order in the movement of the aircraft he studied with fascination the last of the japanese planes as they circled up toward their aerial guide-post and moved thence in a steady stream to the northward the american planes which had been harassing and firing on the japanese as they circled for altitude now turned and closed in on the rear of the enemy and the fighting was fast and furious plane after plane tumbled sickeningly out of the sky but for winslow the sight lasted only a few minutes for the combatants were flying at full speed and soon became mere flitting insects against the grey light of the morning sky striding down the roadway past the mangled body of the american gunner winslow reached the culvert 
Ethel Calvert was sitting on a flat stone at the edge of the water. She held her woven grass sandals in her hands and was washing them by rubbing the soles together in the stream. As Winslow looked down at her in silence, the girl looked up and eyed him curiously. Neither spoke. The man stooped and washed his hands in the brook, and then, stepping upstream a few paces, he drank from the rivulet. Returning, he regarded the girl. She had placed her sandals beyond her on the grassy bank, and sat with her bare feet in the shallow stream. Her head, buried in her arms, rested upon her knees. The slender shoulders now shook convulsively, and the sound of a sob escaped her. In the calmness of his cynicism, the man sat down on the rock and placed a strong arm around the trembling woman. "'I know,' he said. "'It's a dirty, damned mess. But we didn't start it.' After a time, the girl raised her head. "'I know we didn't start it,' she said. "'But isn't there something we can do to stop it?' "'Well,' he replied slowly i rather hope to have a hand in stopping it and perhaps you can help how surely you can do as much in stopping it as one of those poor devils that gets smashed does in keeping it going he went on how she repeated well that's quite a long story he replied if you don't already know I told you who I was. Yes. Well, the regenerationists, along with many other sincere men and women in this country, tried to prevent this war, and are trying to get it peaceably settled now. The Japs don't want to die. They want a chance to live. We've got a lot of vainglorious, debauched, professional soldiery that wanted to fight something, and now they're getting their fill. In the first place, there is no need of war, and in the second place, when there is war, the same stamina that will make efficient humans for the ordinary walks of life will make good soldiers. But money talks louder than reason. The ruling powers and American government are a crew of beer-bloated politicians who are in the pay of a cabal of wine-soaked plutocrats and the American people under such administration have become a race of mental and physical degenerates. The Japs knew this, or they would never have invaded the country. What are you going to do about it, and what are you doing here now within the Japanese lines? asked Ethel when her companion paused. Oh, I am acting as my own war correspondent, he replied, smiling a little. Winslow jumped up excitedly and clambered to the top of the embankment. Ethel, noting his alarm, slipped her feet into her sandals and rose to follow him. "'Quick!' he exclaimed, hurrying down the bank again. "'It's American cavalry!' "'But let us go meet them,' said the girl. "'No, never,' replied Winslow, taking her by the arm and hurrying her into the culvert. "'You don't understand.' As for you and Kimo, your reception would be anything but pleasant, and as for me, I'm an outlaw with a price on my head. Reaching the chink where the rocks had fallen out of the culvert wall, 
Winslow squeezed into it and pulled the girl down beside him. Carefully he crowded her feet in his own back, so that their presence could not be detected from the end of the culvert. "'I'm afraid we left tracks on the bank, but we can at least die game,' he said, pulling his magazine pistol from his belt and handing it to the girl, while he drew from his hip pocket the weapon he had taken from the dead aviator. "'I hate these things,' he said. "'But when a man is in a corner and no chance to run, I suppose he's justified in using a cowardly fighting machine.' They heard clearly now the hoofbeats on the roadway above. Presently an officer rode his horse down to the stream at the head of the culvert. "'Anything under there?' called a voice from above. "'Nothing doing,' replied the other, peering beneath the archway. "'You're a fool sitting there like that,' called a third voice. "'Company C lost two men back there from a wounded chap under a bridge.' The horseman urged his beast up the bank, and the troop passed on. For some hours the man and the girl remained in the culvert. Meanwhile, Winslow explained the regenerationist movement, which was not as his enemies interpreted a traitorous party favoring the Japanese, but only a group of thinkers who advocated principles not unlike those which had made the Japanese such a superior race, either at peace or at war. As she listened, it seemed to Ethel as if her own dream had come true, for here indeed was a man of her own blood with stamina of physique and mental and moral courage, who professed and practised all she had found that was good among the people of her enforced adoption, and in addition much that to her, with her racial prejudice in his favour, seemed even better than the ways of Japanese. In reply to her questions as to the cause of his outlawry, Winslow explained that he and other leaders of his party had long been at sword's points with the conservatives who were in power, and that the administration, taking advantage of the martial frenzy of the war, were persecuting the regenerationists as supposed traitors. As the sun indicated mid-forenoon, the disheveled editor of the Regenerationist and his newly found follower sauntered forth and took to the turnpike. "'We may as well be on the road,' he argued. "'The sooner the American people get the inside facts of this affair, the sooner they will decide to stop it, and it's forty-five miles to the nearest place where I can get in touch with my people.' Bareheaded through the hot sun, they travelled rapidly along the turnpike, keeping a sharp outlook for occasional parties of cavalry and hiding in the fields until they passed. Sometimes they talked of the contrasted ways of life in Japan and in America, and again Winslow wrote hurriedly in his notebook as he walked. About three o'clock in the afternoon they stopped in the shade where a rivulet fell over a small cataract. "'Aren't you hungry?' asked Ethel, after they had drunk from the brook. "'I don't know. I haven't thought of it particularly,' replied her companion. "'Let's see. The last time I ate was in a farmhouse north of Houston. That was eight days ago. When have you last eaten?' "'Yesterday morning,' replied the girl. "'Then you are probably hungrier than I am.' 
with their conversation and the murmur of the waterfall they had failed to detect the approach of two cavalry officers who walking their tired mounts had come up unheeded hey look at the beauty in breeches called one of the approaching men her for mine returned the other i saw her first high returned the first drawing rein give it to me you hog you've got one all right all right go take it maybe the bum will object laughed the first as the unshaven winslow advanced in front of the girl run quick called winslow to ethel they're too drunk to shoot straight the turnpike was enclosed by a high woven wire fence and the girl obeying turned down the road her would-be claimant put spurs to his horse and dashed after her leaving winslow covering the rear horseman with his magazine pistol well said the drunken officer weakly i ain't doing nothing then ride down the road the other way as fast as you can go the officer obeyed for a moment winslow watched him and then turned to see ethel climbing over the woven wire fence with the soldier trying to urge his horse up the embankment to reach her winslow started to run to the girl's rescue but no sooner had he turned than a bullet sang past his ear wheeling about he saw the other cavalryman riding toward him firing as he came with lewd brutality calling for vengeance in one direction and a man firing at his back from the other winslow's aversion to bloodshed became nil and aiming cool he began firing at the approaching officer it must have been the horse that got the bullet for with the third shot mount and rider somersaulted upon the macadam without compunction winslow turned and sprinted down the roadway he saw ethel dashing across the field hurdling the cotton rows the officer was racing down the road seeming away from her but in another moment he turned through a gap in the fence and rode down upon the fleeing woman the athletic winslow vaulted the six-foot fence with an easy spring and tore madly through the obstructing vegetation the rider overtaking the woman tried to hold her first by the arm and failing in that he grabbed her by the hair winslow wondered why she did not shoot him and then he recalled that he was carrying both weapons in another instant he was up with them and had dragged the man from his horse and flung him to the ground the soldier kicked and swore but half drunk his resistance was of small consequence to his well-trained adversary here called winslow to the girl who had tumbled down in a heap more from fright than physical exhaustion come and get my knife and cut the rein from the horse's bridle thus equipped the two strapped their captive's hands and one foot together behind him there now said winslow as he relieved the officer of his weapon hop back to the bridge and look after your comrade he fell on the turnpike a while ago and i'm afraid he hurt his head we'll have to be going shall we take the horse asked ethel no replied her companion beginning to throw clods at the animal we'll simply run him away 
As for us, we're safer on foot, and will in the long run make better time. You're not tired, are you? he asked, as they turned into the roadway again. No, she replied, only a bit tired and weak from my scare. How far have we come? Fifteen miles, perhaps. I really hardly know. We've been interrupted so much. They made a long detour through the fields to avoid a group of buildings. Striking the road again, they soon came upon a slight rise of land that stood well above the level of the surrounding country. "'Are we not rather conspicuous here?' asked the girl. "'Well, rather,' admitted her companion, pausing to look around. "'But I guess we can see as far as we can be seen.' "'Look! Look!' called Ethel excitedly, jerking her companion's arm and pointing to the south, where the flat horizon was broken by the derricks and tanks of the oil fields. At first Winslow saw nothing, and then, shading his eyes, he sighted what looked like a great bevy of birds flying just above the horizon. Larger and larger grew the specks against the sky. "'They will be over us in fifteen minutes,' said Winslow." let's get up in that oak over there where we can see without being seen safely hidden by the enveloping foliage the man and the girl now watched the approach of the plains as they came over the oil region the plains began swooping near the ground and then rapidly rising again it's japanese after the american cavalry i guess said winslow in a few minutes black smoke belched forth at numerous points from the petroleum works after a time a cloud of dust arose from a great meadow that spread for several miles to the north of the oil wells a group of aeroplanes hovered closely above the dust cloud and kept up that periodical swooping towards the earth it's stampeding cavalry said the sharp-eyed ethel and the airmen are dropping bombs on them. The cloud of dust came nearer and nearer, until they could see the swift fall of the deadly missiles from the swooping plains, and the havoc wrought in the straggling ranks by the showers of pellets from the shrapnel exploding above their heads. When the foremost of the cavalry troop were perhaps a quarter of a mile from the observers, a commanding officer, who was riding well in the lead, wheeled his horse— threw away his jacket, tore off his white shirt, and waved it frantically above his head. An answering truce flag soon appeared from a plain above, and the jaded horseman, riding up, drew rein and waited. The truce plane now swooped low and dropped a message fastened to a white cloth. A soldier caught it and brought it to the officer, who signaled dissent. Orders were called along the line, and the men filed by and piled their weapons in an inglorious heap. After this, most of the lazy circling planes rose and made off to the left, while a few, assigned to guard duty, circled above the retreating cavalry, as they moved off slowly in the opposite direction. Two belated members of the troop, who had lost their horses, flung themselves down to rest for a moment in the lengthening shadow of the oak tree. "'Oh, 
god said one as he panted and mopped his forehead oh god i was scared that damned shrapnel bursting right over us no chance to fight back or get away it ain't no fair fighting like that you can't get at em they tricked us they have returned his companion our own airmen's up in nebraska chasing the japs that gave us the slip this morning and here these damn hawks come swooping in i reckon it's reinforcements from japan the transports that brought the first bunch must have been back and got another load and this time it seems to be regular soldiers here to kill the others were just decoys no they ain't exactly decoys they're here to stay and raise families and damned if that ain't what i'm going to do if i ever get out of this god our loss must be something awful and they're at it yet look see em over there by beaumont like a flock of crows the bunch that got us was just a few of them for a time both soldiers eyed the distant fighting when i get out of this continued the first speaker when i get out i'm going to join the regenerationists what's that pace cranks yep but it's more than that it's hell's cranks and temperance cranks and moral cranks and socialist cranks and every other kind of crank that believes in people being decent and living happy hell's quiet lives instead of fighting and robbing and boozing and abusing themselves and each other to death oh hell don't preach just because you're scared said the other getting up call it preaching if you like but believe me i've been getting letters from the folks back home and my people ain't such poor stuff either if i did join the army and i want to tell you that such preaching is getting damn popular lately this fall's election you know and the way we've been done up here today will have a lot to do with the outcome we better move said the other looking up that jap up there thinks we're going back after our guns with the oil regions again in the hands of the vigilant japanese winslow and Eppo found escape more perilous and difficult but on the third night they succeeded in getting through the lines and reaching winslow's confederates who were awaiting him near st charles louisiana from hence they travelled by aeroplane to a secluded railroadless valley in the heart of the ozarks it was here that the secret printing plant of the regenerationist had been established ethel knew nothing of printing or journalism but a place was found for her in the department of circulation while news could be received via wireless the paper and supplies as well as the men who went to and fro from the secret printing plant of the outlawed publication had to be transported by plane aviators with sufficient skill and daring for the task were hard to find already at home in the air it was only a few days until ethel was driving a plane on a paper route the seven hundred miles to denver she covered one night returning the next she started out with half a ton of papers seventy-two thousand copies which in suitable bundles were dropped by the boy in the centre of the triangular circle fires which local agents built at night in open fields 
once she lost her load by a fall in the kansas river and once she ran out of fuel and held up a rich country house at the point of a pistol and demanded the supply of automobile gasoline worst of all she was chased one night by a government secret service plane despairing about flying them she got out and held the position directly above their craft while the boy rolled a two hundred pound bale of regenerationists over on the other's wing and sent the federal airmen somersaulting into eternity but these stirring times did not last long with the second japanese invasion and the orientals now established in two widely separated sections of the country the authorities at washington soon acceded to a truce and one of the immediate results was abolition of martial law and the re-establishment of a free press throughout the summer in the rice lands in the south and the wheat lands in the north the japanese lived harmless gardeners of their newly acquired possessions but their gasoline tanks were full and they carried sufficient conflagration bombs to have fired every city from new orleans to st paul had the truce been broken by american treachery the regenerationist now removed to st louis was again a full-sized newspaper the party in power supported by the capitalistic and military classes preached old-fashioned patriotism and with martial music and flying flags tried to enthuse the people but the terror of the american soldiery in the unfair battle of beaumont had gone abroad throughout the land the people feared the draft for military service they feared the firing of the cities the poisoning of their water supplies and a hundred other spectres which in the minds of a degenerate and servile city population the presence of a successful aerial enemy had inspired the reform party of the regenerationists had by the fortunes of war achieved a tremendous growth their recruits came both from the better element who had thus been awakened from their lethargy and from the cowardly rabble who supported peace because of the terror in their hearts general stoddard chancellor of the university of illinois a big sound man of clean mind and clean body was chosen as the radical presidential candidate and won with an overwhelming majority his election meant peace between the warring powers and strong likelihood of peace in the world for all time to come it also meant other things it meant the complete inversion of the american policy and the welcoming of science as the servant of mankind's larger needs and not merely a flunky to the degenerate luxury-loving few president-elect stoddard with masterful hand began at once the organization of the new administration among the appointees whom he early announced was that of stanley winslow to the position of secretary of public health in his telegram of acceptance winslow said in signifying my intention of accepting the position of secretary of public health in your cabinet i wish to say that it will be my sole purpose to prove myself possessed of the larger patriotism which would defend our race against retrogression and annihilation not by such antiquated and inefficient methods as immigration restriction or mechanical warfare but by the improvement of the race itself and ethel too sent a telegram it read 
professor and madame oshima japanese occupation south dakota as soon as travel is freely established come and visit us one of the children coming over ethel calvert winslow care the regenerationist st louis missouri but of komaru she said not a word she couldn't forget the unfathomable look in his eyes at times she even argued with herself that the poor fellow had loved her but had feared to express himself because he believed as he had stated in his scientific essays that interracial marriages were uneugenic and hence immoral end of in the clutch of the war god hi i'm jesse hello i'm paul hi i'm evan Hello, I'm Brian. Hi, I'm Trish. We're going to talk about Milo Hastings' uh, short work <clears throat> called In the Clutch of the War God from 1911. And uh, this is the second Milo Hastings fictional work I read. I did read a bunch of his other stuff, sort of. Um, he wrote a lot for this magazine, Physical Culture Magazine. Uh, this is serialized between i think july and september in 1911 and it's kind of about uh the u.s versus japan in the war in the pacific kind of except not really uh about exercise (laughs) yeah a lot about exercise (laughs) um there's a there's a lot of evidence uh that makes a lot more sense uh why this story is so weird if you uh have looked at a lot of issues of physical culture magazine so I, I can answer a lot of those questions if you have them. <laughs> but uh, w- what's uh, your overall impression of this um, terrible book? Jesse, that, that, Jesse that's, that's prejudicing the witness by, <laughs> by putting, inserting your own opinion right there. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm faking it. Maybe I think it's wonderful. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's KFAB on your part, but I don't think so. I think the first thing, you've made a terrible mistake. The uh, title can only be pronounced in a heavy metal voice. That's true. In the clutch <laughs> of the war god. <laughs> who, is the, who is the war god in this case? I thought it was true. It's a metaphor. <laughs> it is a metaphor. I think that is correct. Um, I, thought, I, thought, uh, like, I thought there would be a guy. I mean, it, 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 I thought there'd be a guy who's you like the war god was a person. Well, like no, yeah, like I literally thought it would be like the emperor of Japan or something, right? Or or like the emperor of the United yeah. States or whoever. No, I was wondering like who was in the clutch of the war god. Well, I, Japan. I, I that girl oh yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, when it's mentioned in the text, it's it's just more the the, the two empires. The two empires are in the clutch of the war god. Yeah, that yeah, that's. Turns out who it was. But yeah, I thought it was... I mean, Yellow Peril is even called out the words. Yellow Peril aren't even called out in this. So I Mm -hmm. I was expecting it to be uh, different. (laughs) Especially considering... I think think that other Milo Hastings book, The uh, City of Endless Night, is really good. There are things I don't like about it, um, but I think it's so interesting. And I think that this is possibly as interesting... If it was not written so quickly, I, I'm pretty sure this was serialized as he's writing it, just the way it's written, the way things are yeah. presented and then not paid off. I'm pretty sure that's why it's so terrible. And then suddenly at the end, yeah, Ethel has to write a letter, yeah, to try to. 
tie oh, things the off, end is so rushed her on. I, I mean I mean that the whole line about um the interracial marriage is kind of rankled me and it's the last line of the book it's like uh well wow, that's I, that's totally explainable yeah that's that's one issue to discuss for sure um it's interesting that it's sort of countered, though, by the fact that um, there is an interracial marriage in the book. There is. Uh, between uh, Professor Oshima and his French wife, whose name, if I ever heard it, I can't remember. But they have children. Mrs. So. Oshima. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's uh, definitely, you know. So, so and notice the children are. There's a period of, of the happy, fruitful marriage between the Oshimas. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's the date for this? Nineteen eleven. Nineteen eleven. Right. So this is this is before like the. This is before like Showa. So this is before the Showa period, right? So, like in the late Meiji, or even throughout the Meiji period and in the Taisho period, you have this openness to the West. Like they bring in baseball. They. You know, uh, what's his name? Yukichi Fukuzawa. That's his name, Fukuzawa Yukichi. Goes to America, studies it, right? There's a lot more cultural exchange between the United States and Japan, like in that Meiji period. Mm. I mean, I guess they get more known for copying from the Germans, like the military yep. reforms and some of the industrial, the Zaibatsu thing that's more modeled off of maybe some oh. German firms, but also the Americans. The Americans went like with the big firm industrialization, right? And and so there was more of that at the time, right? I think it's harder to think about that when you, when you think of the Showa period. Well, the, 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 this this story was written like five years after the Russo-Japanese War, where Japan surprisingly spanked Russia, Russia, Russia's fleet, and and so what? That was like, wow, Japanese Japan's actually a possible world power here. So I think that's was on his mind at the time, even though we haven't got to the show period, as you say, that yeah. Japan, Japan's Japan rising. Yeah. They, they, they just took, they just took Russia down pretty effectively. They, they are supposed to be working within who's across the other side of the Pacific, the U S so mm-hmm. hence conflict. But I mean, it's so weird. It doesn't mention. So if you have a Japan, Russia, America conflict, what the heck happened to Hawaii in this book? Yeah. Story. Yeah, that that was that was like a very so one of the things you have to remember is that Hawaii is you know it's not a state yet, but also no, they but, but, but they aren't building up the way they you know it's built up, but it's not built up as much as it is. Uh, but so what's also so weird is it's this novel or whatever it is is set in 1958, right? So it skips past World War One, World War Two, and now we're I in the late fifties. Was- just astonishingly optimistic to think that they're, you know, years just a few years after the 1904-05 Russo-Japanese War, mm-hmm. and to imagine that there would be no major wars for uh, 50 years. Um, yeah, I mean, World War II, World War One. I pulled a quote. Thus, it came to pass that the West and the East were in the clutch of the war rod finally in the 1950s. Which, no one knew just what the war would be like, for the wars of the last century had been bluffing, bulldozing affairs concerning trade agreements or Latin American revolutions. There had been no great clash of great ideas and great peoples. And I think that last line is just flat out wrong <laughs> to yeah, anyone well, like who's the city of endless history. Night. How yes, can you say there's opposite. no 
great clash of great ideas since uh if he's even if he's counting from eighteen fifty eight to the supposed nineteen fifty eight, it's, oh, it's to say there had been wow he's, he's been in the Crimean <laughs> War really, and the oh. Franco uh, So the, there's a there's a reason right. why both the City of Endless Night and this don't deal with like the Soviets and uh you know the Well of course not the Soviets, the Russians. Uh, yeah. Um but it it's because there's a connection between the Nazis, which is what really Milo Haste is is talking about in City of Endless Night, even though there's no Nazis yet. Or and Nazis. and the Japanese. And that connection is the ethos of the readership of physical culture magazine. It is really weird to read these mag it's not just that magazine. Almost all the magazines of the period are doing this. Um well, I don't know, not all. All the ones I'm looking at have it. And uh there's a story by H. G. Wells where he makes fun of this movement. Um he actually has a character uh, in a very short two two book it's not book, two short story series. Um, he's an English dilettante who's a vegetarian and he is, you know, buys his way out of all his problems. He wants to take flying lessons. He wants to get an air, airplane. Uh, he can't find a, 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 a trainer to train, train him how to fly. So he, he just will do it on his own and he builds the back airplane in his backyard or has his servants do it. And then basically he destroys his town trying to, uh, fly his aircraft and he doesn't die but he he causes so much damage he has to flee town um in the next story which is previewed in the first story this is uh early uh early 20th century um hg wells writing in the strand he he goes to the alps um and becomes a climber and of course he thinks he can climb all the mountains that are unclimbable and he annoys all the experienced climbers by somehow not dying in climbing uh, what's called the the mountain called the Murderborg. <laughs> the Murderborg. And he even he even has his his mother who is like indulges him in all things uh, carried up the mountain like in a hammock, and she somehow also doesn't die. And he creates the record for the fastest and uh, fastest ascent and the fastest descent. Um, by like days, um, on one of these mountains and somehow doesn't die. And this is to the annoyance of everybody in, in the Swiss, Swiss hotels that he's staying at. Um, one of the things that he says in one of these conversations is, um, uh, they all hated me because I was a vegetarian. <laughs> and we are given very much to understand that the reason, uh, <laughs> they know he's a vegetarian is he goes up to them and tells them. And then right, he, I'm assuming he's one of those annoying preachy vegetarians. In, indeed. And one of the things that he does is, is he points out, you know, why, why they're so unhealthy, even though actually they're quite robustly healthy. And that is outdoor exercise is part of this thing, right? Is, uh, is that they're not taking plasma on and a big, <laughs> there's a big list of all the products that you find advertised in the back of physical culture uh, magazine, all of these yeasts <laughs> and pastes and Kellogg's. You know, health, health <laughs> products that are, <laughs> so, that people are still taking this culture of, you know, supplements and all that stuff to help improve your, your, 
your health and keep you alive longer and make you more fit. And uh, one of the things that's not um, maybe obvious from all this is it's not just male gym rats who are the target for this. It's actually more female-oriented. So if you look at episodes, or not episodes, uh, issues of Physical Culture magazine, we don't have uh, scans of the original for these three, but there are other 1911 issues uh, available. Uh, women are on the cover of all of them, and they're all fit, and they're doing like archery, or they're doing yoga, the equivalent of 1911 yoga. Um, there's one where there's a baby uh, with a dumbbell. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about reproduction and and having a good eugenics. It, it it's super eugenics based. So when our heroine Ethel looks at the Japanese pilot and finds him attractive, there is an attraction yeah. to what the Japanese are doing with their purity of their race, and that's the same thing that's going on in City of Endless Night. There's this. Race purity. Yeah, the Germans, yeah. That's in, right. In their city. And this is something that, the, you know, eventually the Soviets will not be so interested in, right? And so the reason it feels so, uh, I don't know, surprisingly modern, even though it's so backwards, is because the things that made our reality as it was for Japan and Germans was coming out of the same movement that was happening in the United States under Bernard McFadden, who does the intro for this story, and who was uh, Milo Hastings' editor. Milo Hastings wrote for almost, as far as I can tell, almost every issue of Physical Culture magazine, and it almost never was fiction. I couldn't find any other fiction at all in Physical Culture magazine. It's all articles about yeasts and pastes and uh, being outside, Getting good exercise I, 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 and keeping I, I, genetically yeah, I mean, pure. I mean, that's the extension of the the food the food fitness craze in the late eighteen nineties, where you had like Kellogg and whatnot, and mm-hmm. things like super cereals. So that's this is kind of like the physical version of that trend, where you had and also weird Bobril, habits right? And stuff. What's that, that Bob Bobril um, coming out of the Bobril in East Asia too. Oh yeah, yeah. There's, it's a like, worldwide movement. This magazine called. Uh, Linglong, which is like a like basically like Teen Vogue, or it's kind of the equivalent of maybe Cosmopolitan, but maybe for a younger audience, what would it be? Sixteen, whatever those magazines are, right? Right. And it's it was like, it was like in the very popular nineteen twenties, and but as it developed, it became much much more like about girls' health, and like the covers would be you know women in swimsuits and stuff, and there'd be mm-hmm. articles about swimmer or this this athlete but always women right yeah it's like a really interesting kind of you know it's always presented as like we need to uplift these people for the health of the nation and japan had that same obsession with like physical education and stuff there's a wonderful book which i forget the title of about you know some of the how these ideas were really took off in the in the meiji and in taisho periods of, of japanese history so uh, I've got um, uh, that, I, I have it here, the the intro by Bernard McFadden. He's the editor of Physical Culture magazine. He's also the editor of a magazine called Liberty. He's the editor of a lot of magazines. Liberty is um, sort of competitor to Time and uh, Cosmopolitan. It was kind of like, um, it was, a, it was 
well, life is more photos, so it's it's a mix, but it's more like uh, Saturday Evening Post and okay. that sort of thing. Um, it, it was his, I think, most breakthrough magazine. But Physical Culture was just one of many magazines he edited. And uh, so it wasn't well known for fiction, but he does this little editorial introduction to uh, to it. And um, I'll just read that, and then you can see, uh, I think, where he is encouraging Milo Hastings. Forward. In this strange story of another day, the author has, quote-unquote, dipped into the future and viewed with his mind's eye the ultimate effect of America's self-satisfied complacency and her persistent refusal to heed the lessons of Oriental progress. I can safely promise the reader who takes up this unique recital of the 20th century warfare that his interest will be sustained to the very end by the interesting deductions and the keen insight into the possibilities of the present trend of eternal, uh, sorry, international affairs exhibited by the author. Um, the reason it's not more detailed is because I don't think the, he, he just had like a rough outline at that point. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Bernard McFadden is, he lived the stuff he, he, believe you know that he's writing here like he was uh if you type in his name bernard it's not bernard it's bernard with two r's at the end mac fadden um you'll see photos of him um and he's all buffed up like he's he's a strong man right bodybuilder at least he practices what he preaches oh yes he believed all this stuff um he believed that he would i I, i've made notes about him over the years because i just he's so annoying um and so important for the early 20th century American magazine industry. He was, he was a fraudster. He made lot, lots of lies about his uh, circulation for his magazine Liberty, which were, was done so that he could get more advertising revenue. Um, he had a magazine called Ghost Stories, which was actually a competitor to Weird Tales and a very bad competitor. It almost has nothing worth reading in it, but it did have one Robert E. Howard story, a boxing story. Um, a boxing story? A boxing ghost story, yes. Okay. <laughs> um, and, yeah, it, it was like a, a weird a weird twist, but um, what was also strange about most of uh, ghost stories and a lot of his magazines is his illustrations, especially in the fiction early ones, were... Um, photos. They were like, so this magazine ghost stories, you open it up, and most of the time the illustrations for the stories are not drawings, they're photographs, like staged photographs, like a film set, where some lady is like looking across the bedstead at a ghost that's coming out of the wall. And then on the next page there'd be another scene from it, but it's done as a photograph. And it mixed in stories that were supposedly true with Stories that are not attributed as fiction, but are, you know, probably fiction. Um, and then also had horoscopes and it, it was, it's, it was geared towards women generally, uh, but it had a male audience as well. So, uh, this guy, he was, uh, in one issue of Liberty, he interviews, um, uh, El Duce. <laughs> he goes to Italy. And he has a conversation with him. He says, what are your plans for the United States? And what do you think about this? And Il Duce is like a total stuck-up guy, but also reserved and very well-spoken in the in the uh, interview. And then, you know, he's talking about uh, what the Germans are doing. So he's really up in the business of telling the Americans how to think about foreign affairs 
and how to deal with their own uh, internal issues of like how we should be, you know, all in the gym all the time and eat, eating plasma on and, uh, you know, he had like 16 kids, I think, and they're all named, uh, starting with the letter B, except for one of them. <laughs> there aren't that many. Beatrice. What, what is some more? <laughs> There's a all named B <laughs> because he's basically a, a, like a total, um, he thought, he thought he was going to live to 120 or something and he died of a, you know, not a yeast infection, a urinary tract infection. Wow. So. He's like a, he's a very important figure in this. Like he kept Milo Hastings working and probably told him to write, you know, or go ahead and write this thing. And that's kind of why it is so wonky. Like that Milo Hastings is interested in chickens. We get a little bit about chickens in here, but it's mostly, I think Bernard McFadden saying, get, get some of this in there and tell them about how the Japanese are way ahead of us. And well, he wasn't wrong about chickens. It's the clutch of the war god. <laughs> <laughs> oh, about- the brood of the, the brood of the war god. <laughs> Chicks reared and slaughtered with scarcely a touch of a human hand. Right. And all, all, all this was under the control of concentrated business organization. The old sturdy, wasteful farmer class had gone out of existence. Yeah, uh, it, yeah it talks that's, about that's all of that. And I, I found it funny the next the next bit. Uh, New York had a population of twenty three millions. Manhattan Island had been extended by filling in the shallows of the bay till the battery reached almost to Staten Island. That's bonkers to fill in New York Harbor. What the hell are you doing with the Hudson River? This makes absolutely no sense. I thought like. No. It's also I mean they moved the battery, which is like a eighteenth century thing, isn't it? The the, the the battery the, the battery is a early nineteenth century bit at the end early of Manhattan. Nineteenth century, so they moved the battery for no reason. I, I it's like, like what that, the that, heck? that kind of took me out of my. Well, uh, so they I, actually they extended the, the battery, island and like, then they moved the battery there. I, I think what they mean by the battery, they're talking about Lower Manhattan. They're talking about Lower Manhattan. The battery is not in the actual port; is in the battery. They're talking the about the neighbor. Yeah, the neighborhood. It's like, but so that means basically. New York Armor with Statue of Liberty and everything else is all just land. But you have a you have a giant river coming down from the Hudson, the Hudson River. Where's that water going? If if you filled in New York Harbor, where's that water going? He, he's not worried about that. Well, well, as a New Yorker, I am, damn it. <laughs> uh, here's a surprise, right? In the third chapter, we're suddenly introduced to our quasi hero. Our th- third segment, right? Um, this editor of the Regenerationist magazine. Always nice to oh, see magazine. a newspaper editor as a hero of a story. Yeah, it was in a newspaper or was it like a magazine? I wasn't, I wasn't clear. Um, uh, but he was, it, it was definitely like, it was basically physical culture magazine. <laughs> the, the Regenerationist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, um, it's, it's a political movement. It's a it's a paper and a movement. Yeah, it's a political movement. It's you know there, there was a lot of political movements in the late nineteenth century. I guess this is uh, you know another of them in the tw- early twentieth century. There was some, but uh, notice how weird the combination of ideas was. One of them was socialism, right? Which was a kind of surprise given uh, given what's going on. But it also is not the socialism we seem to know. 
And there's a lot of admiration, like a lot of positive gazing at, at the Japanese system. And I see, like, uh, Madame Oshima, or whatever her name is, as sort of the mirror to Ethel. Madame Oshima has fully adopted the Japanese ways, whereas Ethel's... As, 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 yeah, she's, she's assimilated and acculturated in a way that Ethel doesn't... Ethel, Ethel doesn't want to put on the Japanese yeah. kimono thing that everybody wears, right? Right. I mean, she, she might she might have this unresolved sexual tension with what's-his-name... Um, Kimura. Kimura, thank you. But she never actually goes with that in the end. She, it, it, it is her story of breaking away from the the uh, the ascendant Japanese culture back to the United States. And, th- and there's a kind of like um, appreciation of of the Japanese culture from her point of view. So like one of the things that she's she seems to think is good is they don't put on makeup, right? Which is interesting. And I've got a, a line here. Uh, it's basically just the editor talking, right? Um, I guess the editorial voice of the, of, uh, Hastings. But with all her material glory, there was no strength in American sinews, nor endurance in her lungs, nor vigor in the product of her loins. Her people were herded together in great cities where they slept in gigantic apartment houses like mud swallows in the sandbank. They overrate, uh, they overate of artificial food. Hey, now they're talking about us. Uh, that was made in great factories. Hey, they're still talking about us. They overdressed with tight fitting unsanitary clothing. What? They're made by the sweated labor of the diseased and destitute. I guess that's true of us. That, they, that is true of us. I mean, yeah. I don't. I don't know if it's tight fitting and unsanitary though. They overdrank um, of the old liquors born of ancient ignorance. Aha! There's another movement, right? Of the new concoctions born of prostituted science. They're talking about Dr. Pepper here. <laughs> they smoked and perfumed and doped with chemicals and cosmetics. They, the supposed virtues of which were blazoned forth on earth and sky day and night. So this is advertising, right? And, mm-hmm. uh, if you do a lot of looking at scans like I do, you can't help but realize that this is very true. <laughs> they were very heavily advertising and all of these, uh, you know, things, the perfumes and cosmetics and there's cigarettes and, uh, alcohol. Right. All of these things are true. So there's a, a like a this book is a reactionary move, reactionary movement against all of these sort of sinful, unhealthy, uneugenic things. And so when it ends with that line uh, about <laughs> it is the very last line, right? It's the first time I'll read it. For, for listeners, we probably should actually read it in full. At times, she even argued with herself that the poor fellow that had loved her, but had feared to express himself because he believed, as he has said in the scientific essays, that interracial marriages were uneugenic and hence immoral. Right. It's so, so, it's okay, so it's Kamoru that is the racist. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that could be because yeah, because Kamara might have loved her, but Kamara wouldn't ever move. But this on is it. this is still like uh, you know, this is still Jap- Japan doesn't accept you know immigrants, right? It it's still a thing. If if and what's so weird about this i this, this motivation behind this story is that it says the problem here is not 
uh, Japan needs oil, although that is an issue too. I mean, that's literally what they're after. That, that was the driving thing of World War II. No, but that and, they literally are landing yeah, and and taking really the. Matters in this book. No, no, oh. it's in here. <laughs> they land at the Texas air oil fields, right? They're to secure that, but that's yeah. but that's not for shipment back to Japan. They need breathing room. They need new lands to put their healthy Japanese babies. Which, which, which is funny because given the current, the current problems in Japan of of their population aging and Mm -hmm. not replacing themselves, what Mm -hmm. Milo Hastings misses completely is that as civil, as societies get more and more technologically advanced, birth rate drops and he just assumes that Japan is going to basically need more and more space but that's not what actually happened even even by world war ii the japanese birth rate was going down so yeah but, but the thing is almost except for france almost nobody worries about this until the 70s i mean instead you've got the the, the fear of uh, overproduction that still goes on yeah yeah population bomb yeah paul eric and yeah and, and, the, and the malthusians i mean I, they yeah, turned, yeah, you're wrong but um, they're they're wrong in the end but, but you know, I still I still hear from people who think they're right. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, um, older people, you know, usually people fifty on up, um, but they'll still talk about it. They'll say, "Oh well, you know, we're reproducing too much. We still have too many babies." And you're like, "Well, it's actually the opposite here." I, I mean, you've seen that already. Today, as I was mentioning on a, on this podcast a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was last week uh, about um, about Isaac Asimov, the Frederick Pohl's late eighties nonfiction book, Our Angry Earth, Earth, and he talks about. Oh, oh yeah, we we need to reduce the population to one billion. And I remember even reading back then, like, huh? How? How are you go- how are you proposing to do that precisely? Mm-hmm. Well, you just wait a couple centuries. <laughs> you yeah, just I make everybody's standard of living go up, and that solves it. If you make everybody's standard of living go up, they they seem to stop having babies. Right, but that's that's a long term. I mean, that that that, that that's a long term roller coaster. Good play can do the job. You know, <laughs> well, yeah, that, that, that's the historical... And you, you do get people on the right. You do get people on the right who are worried, worried about overpopulation that will talk you know, pretty openly about uh, about eugenics uh, or about war. Yeah, they'll have the and class people, dimension. Yeah. yeah. And, and then people on the left will talk about, uh, you know, uh, COVID or whatever it is, Gaia's, you know, revenge uh, for corruption and um, I was just going to put in a plug for an um, interesting little science fiction novel called Plum Rains mm-hmm. uh, by uh, an author with a wonderful name of Andromeda Romano Lax. <laughs> That's it, a name. Yeah. Uh, it takes place about 10 years from now, and uh, there are uh, uh, three main characters, a um, very, very old Japanese woman, and how old she is is a plot point, which I won't spoil. Um, her Filipina... Um, maid slash you know body servant and the uh, robot that is hired in order to help them out um it's a it's a really really interesting exploration of that um but i i do i do want to go back to something that uh that jesse touched on um i i reading this i thought this was a, a really good example of progressive fiction um it hit all kinds of high notes i mean the the emphasis on eugenics who got that but also, I mean, this is 1911, right? This yep. is happening during the run-up to Prohibition. Um, and this is a strongly Prohibition-oriented story. I mean, every bad guy is a drunk. You know, the ones who try and um, uh, rape, 
uh, our heroine, our drunk, we get alcohol mentioned again and again. I mean, Jesse, you found that great uh, that great line about old liquors born of ancient ignorance. Um, I mean, this this debate was huge in the U.S. in 1911. Uh, wet versus dry is something that's happening in the national stage, the state stage, and it's happening in cities. Um, so, I mean, this is uh, – it's really interesting to see, you know, this contradiction or this opposition between uh, drunken Americans and their teetotaler Japanese opponents who managed to just completely whoop their asses. Um, and then our regenerators are, are all, again, teetotalers. Uh, I mean, this is, this is really strongly about booze. We got Kate Fallis joining us. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Hello, Kate. Good morning. Hello, Kate. Hey, nice to be here. <laughs> How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm glad you guys are enjoying uh, a little bit of the Milo Hastings. I I think City of Endless Night is amazing. This book is terrible, <laughs> but your no, your narration is great. Oh, thank you. I tried really hard to make it a good story because I was reading the reviews. And everyone said it was just really awful. <laughs> as a book, <laughs> yes. As a book. I'm full of terrible ideas, but interesting. Yeah. I've, I've read a lot worse stories than this one. It had a plot. It moved along. It had. I, I've read many, many worse stories than this, <laughs> so I think that criticism is unjustified. Well, it I'm, actually, it's got stuff. Go for it. Uh, it was, it mm-hmm. was interesting because uh, I have a proof listener at um, LibriVox, and she actually said that she wished it was a full-length novel. Oh, definitely. It, it, it is very suffers from it being so brief. I think yeah, it, City it, of Endless Night is like the same idea, but but way more in-depth. It's really about the world rather than about this one character, right? Exactly. And it's, about, yeah, it's really about what's going on in the world, and it was a, very, a lot of foresight there. How did you uh, – was it uh, – was it you read the original and then you said, hey, I got to do this? How did this come about? You know, as I choose my LibriVox projects, I just kind of like trip through until I find something interesting. But what's really strange is City of in- Endless Night was recommended to me by my dad. Weird. Um, like, yeah. Weird. I, I didn't know that it existed until I found like it. It, it as like, what? what is this? I've never even heard of Milo Hastings. How did your dad hear of him? No, I hadn't heard of him either, but I thought that his story was interesting, and uh, there seemed to be enough interest of people who wanted to hear it for LibriVox. And once I'd done the first one, I kind of liked to see, what else has this writer done? Hmm. And uh, he he's done a book called Dollar Hen, which I think would be actually a really good book. Is that available on Liverox? Did you do that one? I have not done that one. It, now, is that one fiction? Or no, it's 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 like a how-to manual person. for like how to make backyard chickens. You know, yeah. like if eggs make eggs in your backyard, and apparently it's quite funny. Like and like, I was reading the reviews on that one, and it sounded really interesting. It's sort of the connecting tissue between these two books, right? Is his his? I think. In the beginning of Dollar Hen, which has had another title originally, um, basically he was saying, uh, uh, I'm an ex-inspector of poultry for the government. Um, and like, this is how to make, make your backyard chicken things work. And he was in, like, this guy, Hastings was an inventor. I talked about this on the Milo Hastings show, or the, um, City of Endless Night show. Mm-hmm. 
Um, he was an inventor of a device that used the fact, facts about how eggs are um, change temperature as they develop. They start off cold and need to be warmed by their mothers, right? Um, the hens. And then as they develop, they start emitting heat. So his system, which he developed, allowed you to use the late cycle eggs in development to uh, incubate the early cycle eggs in development. So it was like uh, free energy, basically, right? You put in the eggs and the new eggs that need to be incubated are being incubated by the later eggs or earlier eggs that are almost ready to hatch. And I was like, wow, that's recycling, really... Recycling the heat energy. Yeah, using waste heat from late, late development eggs to incubate early heat. And that way, chickens don't have to sit on one clutch of eggs. <laughs> As Brian pointed out, it's another egg joke, right? One clutch of eggs, they can, they can, you know, constantly pumping, be pumping out eggs. And this is how we got cheap eggs, right? <laughs> Why, uh, you know, you can get a dozen eggs at the grocery store for a reasonable price. Um, fascinating stuff. It really is interesting. And, uh, I thought that, uh, his his mentor was also kind of an interesting angle to the story. Bernard McFadden, you mean? Yes, yes. He was a very evil and also fascinating figure. <laughs> he he's got all sorts of weird um, fetishes that he's he's fascinated by, and of course we have hindsight looking back at him and say, you know, your interest in this is 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 going to turn out really bad. But he's so important to understanding twentieth century. You know, like just the fact that everybody has to go to PE. <laughs> you think he was evil or just kooky? Uh, I think it, being an anti-vaxxer is is evil. Um, uh, he was. Mm. I, I made a list of all of his sort of faults. Um, he didn't kill people, but he was. You know, he is a fraudster. Uh, you know, lying about his circulation. Um, he he was really anti-FDR, um, but he also changed his position on that multiple times. Um, he was trying to be, he was trying to be incredibly influential in the United States politics and sort of culture, and he totally was. He didn't, you know, ascend to the highest heights of it, but he was absolutely important for a lot of the things that were happening in the early 20th century. What, what, yeah, definitely. what do you know He's about an him? interesting character. About Bernard? Uh, you know, I don't know a whole lot about him, but as I started to um, work on the City of Endless Night, I saw that he was, and uh, the next story, the um, in the Clutch of the War God, I saw that he had actually sponsored the story, and I mm -hmm. thought that that was interesting, so I kind of did a little bit of research on him, and just really strange, almost like um, the original Paul, uh, or excuse me, the original Jack LaLanne. Yes. Mm -hmm. But Jack LaLanne is, is like, he's sort of cute. Whereas Bernard mm -hmm. McFadden, like, oh, so I, I'm, I've compiled a bunch of these over the years. Um, uh, I've got a, posted up a article from Liberty November. It's editorial from Liberty November 1930. Or sorry, November 30th, 1940. And it ends with an anti-vaccination appeal. Like you should be resisting this. Now, the thing is, is there are reasons to be concerned about vaccines. But um, not the reasons that he presents, um, because vaccines have generally helped a lot of people 
on the planet Earth stay alive and not diseased. Um, but uh, uh, here's a little tiny summary I did of sort of his stuff. Bernard McFadden, Bernard McFadden, a physical culture guy, started his own religion, <laughs> Cosmetarianism, which is based on pumping iron, by the way. Uh, claimed that his workouts and raw food diet would enable him to live to 150 years old. He died of a treatable urinary tract infection, uh, refusing treatment at age 87. Um, 1941, he was uh, convicted, I think, of falsifying his uh, advertising revenue. Or circulation figures to increase his advertising revenue. And then... Uh, Let's see. Oh, yeah, another 1936 anti-vaccination column. Um, he had a lot of articles. Like, he wrote article after article after article for... If you look at that physical culture magazine, he, he wrote a lot of the stuff that's in it. Milo Hastings was sort of his his employee, is the way I, mm -hmm. I think of it. Um, uh, yeah, here it is. An article called, I lost 40 pounds in my garden. Jesse says, that was careless of you. <laughs> and then another article in the same issue, how I'm training my children. And it was a horrible article about what he was doing. At this point, he, he had eight children, seven of them with names starting with the letter B. Because um, he's naming them after himself, starting with Bernard, right? Um, so, oh, article against the New Deal. Um yeah, he he was. I think I think he was on the wrong side of the Massey affair, which a lot of people were at the time. Um, but that is really evil. Um, his interview with yeah. Benito Mussolini was rather fawning, um, not wholly fawning. Um, it was 1938. Mussolini was not, uh, you know, as hated as he was. But he he was he was trying to be up in all of this political business and. Uh, he's gaslighting and circuit, you know, he, he was, he was a bad guy. Um, but I, I don't think he's a bad guy in the same terms of, you know, like he's literally going out and then killing people. But I think of him like, I would say like a guy named, uh, uh, Michio Kaku. He, he is either believing the shit that he's saying and people are accepting it or he's lying deliberately and people are accepting it. And I think that's evil. But I have a weird have, standard of evil, so. What do you think of I I haven't heard this before. Oh, I've got a, I've got. I'll send you the thing. But basically, yeah, I just collected examples of of him lying about stuff to sell his latest book. Um, basically, there's a, like a collection of um, things saying, uh, in 1900, talking, uh, long distance communications was yelling at your neighbor out the window. It was like ignoring the fact that there was mail, ignoring the fact that there was telephone, ignoring the fact that, right? Like, he's just, like, exaggerating, and nobody was calling on, calling him on it. Um, he's a futurist, but unlike uh, Brian, <laughs> I don't, I, I think Brian bases his stuff on reality. Maybe, maybe, I, maybe I don't understand Brian's stuff well enough to criticize him better, but um, I'll, I'll dig this up for you. Oh, thank you. Sorry, I don't want to. Well, it is your uh, your business your your competition. So yeah, um, fascinating. But yeah, I say I called them a snake oil salesman, which uh, I think is uh, no nobody cares about this. By the way, <laughs> it's just my hobby horse. <laughs> but uh, 
This is a bunch of clips of him uh, on different things, saying the same thing over over and over again. In the year 1900, uh, they lived to be 49 years old on average and traveled with horse-drawn wagons. Long-distance communication was yelling out the window. Next line down, different interview. 100 years ago, our parents didn't have telephones, and the telegraph was just coming in. Um, long distance communication in the year 1900 was yelling at your neighbor. What the hell is this? <laughs> it's just not true. And this is endless YouTube video interviews and, uh, articles all over the internet and nobody's calling them on it, which to me is a, is indictment of the people who are putting that up and put, put what some people would call platforming. Um, the fact that you, you are not ignorant, you know, you're so ignorant you don't call them on it or don't care to call them on it. Um, it's astounding to me. And, and that's what I would say about Bernard, Bernard McFadden too. He's, he's, he's to be countered because eugenics, uh, is evil. The way it was practiced, it's evil. I understand the motivation, but it's, is really dangerous, right? It's what led to the mm-hmm. Holocaust, uh, when it's yeah, unchecked. It, mm-hmm. it, it's some really dark roads. Uh, so well, this novel doesn't feel that way, but in Germans, there were forced sterilizations in the United States and in Canada, uh, and Absolutely. people are still arguing about reparations for that. And they're still doing it, it just not, it, you know, it's not it doesn't have official sanction, right? It happens in prison now. Women are having hysterectomies because they're considered, uh, you know, bad things, and uh, you know, because they're they're criminals. And just the fact that they're all natives or they're all black, that's not, that's not right. He shouldn't be done. So, um, you know, he's not an evil person in the sense that he went around executing people, but he's an evil person and he's, he's being unchecked. Um, and I don't think that that all falls on Milo Hastings at all. I think Milo Hastings is a really good insight into this world, especially with, you know, that city of endless night. This one feels like it, it could have been much more, I don't know. It was, it was like, uh, do you remember Evan? I think you were on the show we did, uh, with, um, uh, Will, uh, and uh, Paul, you must have been on that too. Um, unless you were away. Uh, it was a Edgar Rice Burroughs novel with Japanese samurai cannibals. Oh yeah. Yeah. I was on that one. Yeah. So that, I felt that this was a lot like that. Uh, what was the name of that? The Mucker. The Mucker. Which is about a, like a Chicago, um, lower class guy getting into, uh, into conflict with a bunch of Japanese exiles who are on some island in the middle of, uh, Borneo or something. And it was like, this is, this feels like it's the same stuff, just with Edgar Rice Burroughs telling it, it's, it's much better story. But there's almost no ideas there, whereas Hastings is full of ideas, but seems to lack uh, the space in this case to, and perhaps the planning, to do a really good job with the ideas that he's presenting here. Because it has a, a bunch of astonishing stuff going on in it, right? The story. Yeah, there's definitely a, a lot of the um, cultural distinctions that they make between Japan and the U.S. are really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, the way that he kind of um, 
he he really admires the Japanese way of life. I, I thought that was interesting. But the you know the ideas themselves are they they were okay. But you know what really kind of bothered me was even from the very beginning there was a lot of um, racial fear. So in the very beginning of the story, it's, it's when, ambivalent though because um, it's it's attraction and fear, right? It is, but remember, in the very beginning, she right away had to dress like she was Japanese because she was afraid of being recognized as an American. <laughs> and and then, it's lucky it, she had black hair then because then she can pass. Had, even later in the well, story, nineteen eleven, like anti foreign riots. I mean, the Boxer Rebellion was what nineteen oh one, China, something like that, China, which is essentially China. an anti foreign movement. Um, so. Here's my thought about this. And I was, I, this is actually like the main thing I was thinking about when I read this book. Was like, it's kind of like this imperial like anxiety. And I don't know if this is universal, but that'd be a good question. Like, do all empires kind of face this? Kind of like when was Decline of the West written? Like the 1890s or something? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, you mean Spengler? Um, yeah. That's a question. Maybe the last 20s. 20s? So 1918 and 1922. 1920, okay. So, I mean, the U.S. as an empire, if you take the... We go back to the origins. Well, let's just take the 20th century, right? Um, has there already been a time where the U.S. didn't like fear some other entity was going to take them over and bypass? It's even called out in this, right? They're, like they're, they're having... Soviets, or it was Japan again in the 80s, and now it's China. Japan is going to take the Philippines. It it happens in this story. Yeah, this is like my my question about, like, if someone were to, like, do a broad history of, like, look at empires throughout history, is there always this kind of fear that drives imperial behavior? This Mm -hmm. fear of being replaced. Because if you're in the imperial court, you know, on some level, what that means for everyone who's not in the imperial court, right? So there's, there's going to be an anxiety about being replaced. The subtitle in uh, this book is The Tale of the Orient's Invasion of the Occident as Chronicled in the Humanic Cultures Society's quote-unquote history of the 20th century. So this is like from a fake history, right? So, of what happened in the 20th century and this Humanic Culture Society, right? This is something to do with the reformist... Uh, I, we can infer that later happens on. And what is this whole thing about? It's about like Japan is ready and doing things that we aren't doing. We're eating bad food. We're uh, wearing clothes that are too tight. We need to wear looser robes. <laughs> we need to exercise <laughs> and be in healthy outdoor society, right? And not be. Uh, and basically be proud of our bodies, right? It, there, there's a movement in, it was popular in Germany and, and in the middle, uh, of the 20th century. Remember, if you watch MASH, um, one of the characters was always reading nudist magazines. <laughs> like nudism is a, a huge part of German culture still. And it's in North America as well, nudist colonies, right? It's part of this idea of like, we need to be more, focused on keeping ourselves healthy and beautiful 
And we're not doing that. And that's why we're going to suffer this invasion from a people who are paying attention to these things. And what do the Japanese in the story really want? Ultimately, it's to have some land for their babies, right? To have some breathing room. And, and that is, it's not something Hastings here has contempt for. He's saying, of course they do. That's what healthy societies want to do. And that's we- it's weird because why would they, you know, take a piece of Texas? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I thought they were going to go to California at least. They were kind of empty, right? Yeah. Went to the city. That's it's right. The way things looked at the end of the early yeah. 20th century, right? Yeah, urbanization and true. this consolidation of, of the country, of the West under the handful of, uh, you know, corporations. Yes. And it's also before the, uh, it's also before the Dust Bowl. So, um, yeah, especially uh, verdant, um, and uh, no, it's it's interesting to think about this. I mean, in terms of uh, again, think about empires. Uh, I was comparing this to the uh, right wing uh, novel called Camp of the Saints, um, which is very popular among the uh, uh, modern right wing today. Hmm. Which is a, a Never kind heard of it. Uh, science fictionish novel about uh, Europe being invaded by uh, people from Africa and Asia. But they're but they're uh, they're immigrants. They're not they're not um, an army um, per se. Um, the uh, what struck me about this about this story there there are a few things. But one of them is this weird idea that the invading flotilla comes in and they've got those awesome ships with the the turtle back tops, and then they do this sneaky attack by kind of fainting towards Panama, but then leaping across Mexico, and then they hit. America, and the first thing they do is they start planting seeds. Yeah, and that's what they do, right? Yeah, they, they are kind of are immigrants, right? That was, that, yeah. was, that was the problem: really is they weren't immigrants. allowing immigration. The United States wasn't allowing immigration because they were afraid of the purity of the Japanese people flooding in and taking over, right? And this, I mean, this is this is the period of time nineteen early nineteen hundreds where bans on certain races of people were happening in not just the United States and Canada too. There's famous incidents where, you know, a boat full of immigrants shows up and they're turned back, right? And it's like, it's not based on the hate of immigration. It's the hate of immigration of your group, right? You're the wrong kind yeah, of people. And they, right. And there was, there was a Supreme Court um, case, I forgot the name of it. I think it's Komatsu, where, where a uh, Son of Japanese immigrants in the United States had to argue that I'm a I'm a United States citizen because I was born here and had to fight to the Supreme Court to get that. Well, here here's the historical factoid here: the Gentlemen's Agreement between the United States and Japan is 1907. So this is just from Britannica. I searched uh, uh, to search in Bing. So uh, uh, Wikipedia. Uh, Wikipedia is out for me, but th- this will do. U.S.-Japanese understandings in which Japan agreed not to issue passports to immigrants to the United States, except to certain categories of business and professional men. In return, U.S. President Roosevelt agreed to urge the city of San Francisco to rescind an order by which children of Japanese parents were segregated from white students in the schools. This was the deal. And that was 1907, so that's, that's fact when he's writing this. Yeah. <laughs> Oh yes, and absolutely. Then, got, then and it's 1888. It's the Chinese Exclusion Act, right? 1880. Mm-hmm. I think it's 1888. Yeah, which is the first anti, like the first modern anti, 
it's, it's like begins this process, which culminates in the 1920s. Yeah, this uh, shows so much. Broad implication of immigration. Yeah, this shows up in so much um, genre fiction in the period. You know, it shows up in uh, King and Yellow's opening few pages. Mm. It's, of course, mm-hmm. you know, notoriously in Lovecraft. And it's not until the 60s that you get these policies overturned. Um, and, um, and that's really interesting in terms of America and, and, and racial minorities coming forward. But, um, but I just, I just love the, the, the shocking nature of, of planting, you know, nice crops. I mean, you, you, you don't get like Americans herded into camps. You don't get, you know, them forced to learn Japanese. You, you just get the, you yeah, know, so we're going to come here. We're going to start putting inside. It's like, there's this great, great bit in, um, um, Grapes of Wrath. Uh, where the Okies make it to California and they're just in awe of how beautiful it is. Not, not visually beautiful, but because it's so easy to grow stuff. And mm-hmm. there's this one of the, uh, one of the Okies like climbs off the truck and just plants something and they drive on just cause he can't resist because it's just so great for, you know, growing food. And, uh, um, I didn't understand that until my wife and I were homesteading, and then we totally got it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, can see, you see Japanese doing this, you know, you fly thirty hours from this, you know, aircraft carrier, and and you know, you yeah, they don't call it that, do but do? that's what it is, right? It's an aircraft. This is this is so early in aircraft flight. Like this is nineteen eleven, nineteen oh oh six was it? No, nineteen oh three is Wright Brothers, I think. And so you don't get a commercial aircraft for like a couple more years yet, like where people are passenger air, like people are going up. It's, it's novel. This is very young. And 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 aircraft versus land forces and how aircraft can dominate forces on the land is something that this, this story really gets. It's like, yeah, Yeah. air superiority. Mm -hmm. And, And don't forget twice. He refers to them as flat tops. Uh, which is the nickname to this day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he did get, he definitely did saw that. The story, one of the stories that this reminds me of, and I've mentioned this story on the podcast before in other contexts, is Cyril Cornbluth's Two Dooms. Mm-hmm. I forgot if anyone's in this you, podcast has ever yeah. read it. No, no, I haven't, but I, you've you mentioned it a few times. It sounds like a good book. It, it is a good story. It's, I don't think it's public domain, sadly. So I think you're right. I think I looked podcast. it up. But 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 basically, basically, basically during World War Two, this uh, this guy on leave in New Mexico takes some magic mushrooms and winds up in a future world where the Japanese and Germans have conquered the United States, and the west part of the United States is full of basically Chinese, Japanese, and Indians who are basically breeding out the continent in the ver- and that is done in a very uncomfortably. Uh, uncomfortable sort of depiction of very, very yellow peril-ish. But I kept thinking about the Japanese wanting to basically settle across the land here. And the story, and I was thinking back to Two Dooms, where the narrative goes across California. It's just full of Indians and Chinese communities just all over the place. And that, I mean, the future of this story is basically a Japanese occupation of half the United States, really. Yeah. In well, similar fashion. yeah, it's, it's the start of, it's the start of the, a novel, right? It's a great, premise yeah, for a novel. story uh, i want to i want to throw you like just sort of some culture of the early 20th century that we like i found i don't remember how i found this but it was probably like one of the things you can do that's pretty interesting you just go to wikipedia and pick a year and then pick a day and then see what happened on that day right you know pick 1905 and then you go march 6th 
And you go and see, there's like, oh, there's some names I recognize here. And then there's other stuff that seemed to be very important at the time that we've completely forgotten. This is probably how I found this guy. There's a guy named Jerome Stevens, who uh, was assassinated in San Francisco by two Korean Americans. They were angry at the United States having uh, just accepted that Korea had become a colony of Japan. And he was working with the Japanese in Korea, and he came home to visit his family. This is all in the newspaper. And these two Korean Americans were so angry about what was happening in, in their homeland that they assassinated this American, you know, uh, diplomat. And it's like, if you imagine how that works, think of today, right? When we've just come out of, I say come out of, uh, there are wars in countries in the Middle East that are still raging 20 years after they were started that uh, were connected to terrorist attacks that happened in the United States that people are really upset about and change the, the, the nature of public focus. Like, who are we angry at? Now, imagine the United States is doing some business off in, in Asia, you know, making friends with the Japanese, which they were doing, right? They're not enemies at this point at all. And so you, you connect that with like, think of, um, I just watched the movie called Midway 2019 Roland Emmerich film, which I do recommend, even though it's a bit weird. Yeah. Um, yeah. and what's so interesting yeah. is, you know, the Americans are there and they're talking about how, you know, the Japanese are running things. We're really interested. The Japanese are in, in American universities studying. Uh, and th- they're all interested in, like, how are we going to engage in this society, uh, this planetary society? Can we have this part of the world? Well, yeah, but you're, you can't have the Pacific. That's ours. Okay, well, we'll take this. And then you have this sort of inevitable clash of two countries that aren't necessarily enemies, but their dynamism is such that they eventually will come into conflict because this one is not declining and that one isn't declining and they can't just like hand over the empire, right? The way the British sort of handed over the empire to the Americans or the French handed over the empire to the Americans, right? There's no give and take. It's two heads coming together and that inevitable conflict shows up like on the streets of your port town of San Francisco, where some guy you've never heard of just got, you know, assassinated publicly, and now there's a big trial. Why? Because of what you're doing overseas, you know, uh, and what's happening overseas. It feels like, why are we a part of this? Well, it's suddenly a reveal of what's going on, really, between these giant nations that we don't think of, you know, Americans aren't focused, generally, on foreign policy, but that's mostly what the president does, right? So when, to do. well, yeah, well, uh, I, but I, I think of like, um, you know, a voting for one president over the other, mostly it, it's sort of policy fake things. But really what matters is like what they actually do with the military, because are they going to attack another country? Are they going to occupy another country? Because that's really dangerous for those other countries that are not electing this guy, right? Domestic policy. We can't do anything about that from the outside, but if I'm, I'm speaking as a Canadian, right? Uh, I can't do anything about that <laughs> by voting. My vote doesn't count. Um, but 
uh, my life might be greatly affected if the United States decides to uh, invade another country and we're forced into this NATO thing, so now we got to go there too. This is like a problem, right? So it, it, it's like that's what the, a story like this is really interesting for is it sort of teases out we've got this lady whose father was a grain merchant, and what happened to him? He's killed in a, a dynamiting of this thing, right? Which we think of as a kicking off of the of the story, but actually that's sort of the end of the of the of the relationship. And and this is so much tied into if you watch Midway, it's sort of there a little bit, but if you listen to Dan Carlin's uh Supernova in the East, he talks a lot of podcast, he talks a lot about this, where, you know, you've got the uh, the Japanese Navy and the Japanese Army and they are in conflict with each other. Right. And it's like, they got us into this and now we have to try and solve this. And, and that is, that is a, a fascinating, difficult to understand and grasp hold of clutch. Like, how did the war god get our, its hands on us? It's hard to explain. So a book like this is good for sort of teasing that out by throwing us a character who is somewhat relatable, right? She thinks these Japanese men are kind of handsome. They do have a nice spirit, but on the other hand, um, I mean, I didn't know that they could fly for 12 hours straight. That's apparently quite difficult, right? She says, maybe I could learn to fly. There's a, a lot of sort of feminist angle to this that's sort of there, but not commented upon so far. I mean, I, yeah, there's just a whole story and a whole little bit about her basically flying for the for the newspaper and getting mm-hmm. into right. all sorts of sorts of adventures is like having to steal gasoline and food at gunpoint. I mean, there's a whole practically a whole novel in that just one. Right. It's compressed bit. into like two paragraphs. It's really, like, it's, that's the disappointing part is I think there is a really good story here, but it doesn't feel like it because of the way it was so rushed out, I guess. Uh, one thing we haven't quite talked about is just the choice of the protagonist in this. Um, you know, it's a man, but he's writing about a woman. And um, before I heard all this stuff about the physical culture magazine's reader audience and everything, I was wondering if that was just uh, to make it more palatable that this this uh, person is not fighting the Japanese invasion, but rather going along with it mm. uh, as, as Witness a Witness to it, right? Um, uh, you know, if it were a man, I think a lot of people, an American man, would the readers would expect him to be a resistor from the beginning instead of sneaking off. You know, <laughs> two thirds of the way through the through the uh, story. Um, yeah, I think it's more palatable to have a woman, yeah, do this uh, sort of sliding out from underneath the uh, Japanese slum, as it were. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because real, right, real men are real heroes. It's it's yeah. uh, the the role for women is expanding, and physical the people at physical culture, the writers, are thinking like they like athletic women, right? There are articles about them. It's not keep you in your home. Um, mm-hmm. The the reason you need loose clothing is not because we don't like your form, your your shape. It's because you need to do like kickboxing. I mean, it's not kickboxing, but that's the idea, right? You should be beautiful like the men are beautiful, like me, Bernard Fed and right, Flexus, right. right? You don't need a corset, so, you know, that that's is right. a weird thing that society did <laughs> to make, you know, figures. I, I'll, I'll just read some. Uh, uh, 
I'll read some uh, article headlines from uh, I've tweeted over the years from Physical Culture. This is from January 1922. I grouched myself into a divorce. <laughs> Another article. <laughs> because marriage is about a relationship between men and women who are not equals, but who are both participants and it's not one-sided right so it's like oh we're getting there right next one yawning your way to health <laughs> from january 1922 <laughs> and then uh an ad for uh the acme of physical perfection um and then they show a photo of a dude with a funny haircut wearing a you know what we th- would think of as a weightlifter's belt and uh, one of those leopard print, <laughs> um, you know, costumes while he flexes his pecs, right? Um, do you glow with health? Some people are dull, drab, uninteresting, and sickly. It's, it's an ad for Virex, which is a uh, device that you rub over your body and it produces uh, violet rays. <laughs> they're not it doesn't say violet uv rays you know it's violet rays so virex violet rays and it's like oh okay that's weird um and then more ads for violet rays over the years um another violet rays um there's articles uh from ghost stories advertising physical culture or pieces from physical culture advertising ghost stories and vice versa bernard mcfadden's you know trying to Going to cross over audience. Um, it's uh, ghost something like you know metaphysical fitness, or, you know. <laughs> metaphysical. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, what you see on the covers is of of physical culture is bodies, right? Like the, there's no landscapes; it's bodies, and it 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 could be like th- thought of this as titillation stuff, but actually it's more like. This is what we think, like, about what you put in your body. So here's one from 1937. The truth about marijuana. Sex-crazing drug menace. (laughs) Oh, that's a problem. But they want reproduction, but they don't want the wrong kind, right? Reefer madness. Finding America's most beautiful woman. $1,000 in prizes for readers. Hollywood's new ideal figure by Adela Rogers St. John. And then, when is marriage sin? <laughs> and this is not, it's not, it's not a, uh, against women being, exposing their bodies. It, it's almost like the way I want to kind of think about it is like, this is what you do with, instead of going to church, right? Like if, if you're a, like I was worried how long we had, um, UK, I was like, it, only 30 minutes? Does that mean, like, do you have to go to church or something? It's it, it's an issue for doing a podcast on Sunday mornings. Uh, I actually have to walk my dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a kind of church, right? <laughs> it is it, it is kind of church. It's, it's, it's ritual. It's very ritualistic. <laughs> it is. And people need rituals. They need things to believe in. This seems to be part of our makeup. And so if you're like a person who is not, none of this is religious-based, right? There's no articles about, you know, keeping your faith. or It's not spiritual revival. It's physical. It's it's about physicality and putting your interest in, you know, raising a healthy baby and putting your interest it's in... Scientific. Sorry? Go for it. This is scientific. 
too, right? Well, pseudo, it's scientific, but also, you know, it's full of bullshit science, right? That eugenics mm-hmm. is about, is, is putting a cloak of science around something that is, uh, it's ideological rather than, you know, but it's related to science for sure, because people take, you know, the, the, there are x-rays. So maybe violet rays do something. One of the things you saw early in this book is she spends a lot of time in the flower garden, right? And that's a good thing. Her skin becomes healthily brown so that she can pass as Japanese. That's mentioned early in the, in the story. And what is she doing that's bad? She's, uh, at the beginning of the story, she's reading a French novel. I guess one of her, um, her, uh, stepmothers. It's not really stepmother. Her, her French Japanese husband's wife <laughs> had lying around, right? And she's reading this French novel, which, which is not about the reality all around them. So she tosses it aside. She should be out in the garden like the Japanese, right? They had to, in this story, they had to till up their gardens to grow more food, and it was a terror. You should be cultivating the beautiful as well as your, you know, outside your body as well to make your body beautiful. Be outside, exercising, right? And you see that a lot of that in Nazi Germany with the Hitler Youth, right, going on, or even in the United States and Canada with uh, and Britain with the Scouts, right? Get out there and learn some skills. Get your badges. Wear your quasi-military uniform. Scary stuff, but it doesn't seem that way. You you see that now with the uh, uh, backlash against uh, digital technology. Well, what kind of backlash are you thinking here? Because everybody's stuck indoors playing with their iPhones and stuff. That hasn't that hasn't really slowed it down too much. Although it it was interesting to, for me to see uh, Sherry Turkle suddenly turn um, back towards screens, but for her it was it was TV, and that was really in many ways made it okay. But um, but still the, the you know the uh, criticisms, the complaints, the anxieties about um, sure, in particular the nexus of social and mobile um, uh, are still roaring right now. Um, and you know we we just saw this with the. Uh, the U.S. government just uh, filed another antitrust suit um, this time against Facebook, um, and so you know you'll you'll, you'll still see this, uh, I think. And there's a little echo there, uh, going back to this. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, no. cult. Yeah, uh, you don't want to be downstairs playing Dungeons and Dragons in your basement. That's unhealthy. It's for Satanists, right? Go outside, <laughs> play football, um, get that uniform on. Be ready play for the polo. play polo. Become Flash Gordon. Or right. Buck you don't want to be four F. Flash Gordon. Whatever four F stands for, right? You need to be yep. ready for yep. the coming war. Yep. Four 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 F means yeah. You, I mean, I mean, I, I mean, I think before the Captain America movie, most people didn't know what modern American people didn't know what the four F movie four F stood for. But when they saw Captain America and saw him get the four F in his attempts to get the army again and again, they kind of figured it out. <laughs> I, I think I, I learned it from Bugs Bunny or Duck, Donald Duck or something. <laughs> yeah. I remember reading the Highline novel. Like if you're four you're four F, like what's four F? Like, oh It's Bone Spurs, that's what it is. <laughs> that, that, exactly. It's Bone Spurs. It's Bone Spurs. I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I don't even know what it stands for, but I guess it's a classification that's it, not it, good. It, 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 there's a four, four, uh, four classification A to F in various categories and four. Ah, A. a so like, F is like fail, like like in yeah, school. You, yeah, you can't get drafted even under the 
most uh, extreme of circumstances. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It's, you're not fit enough to be killed. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, well, well be, because I, I, I mean, once upon a time I thought about joining the Air Force, but my eyes and my hip dysplasia disqualified me from it. See? And and that means you can't have the universal... Uh, this is uh, something Evan talked a lot about. Uh, the universal army. You can't be in the socialist uh, healthcare system that is the military if you are unfit for the military, right? Um, basically, yeah. You can't get the free healthcare that you you need because you're you're disqualified because you're not eugenically pure enough. Your eyes are too bad, or you've got OEs or whatever. And the first thing that they do with the military recruits is put them through training and. Make them even more fit. Yeah, I'm looking at the uh, chart here for 4F from 1948 to 1976. It says this was the standard. So 4F means registrant not acceptable for military service to be eligible class. A registrant must have been found not qualified for service in the armed forces under under the established physical, mental, or moral standards. Aha! This is what yeah, Corporal uh-huh. Klinger was always trying to get out under, right? Or so he says. <laughs> now we would call anybody know Corporal Klinger is. I mean, there is a four of today, but it, but they have other they have slightly different standards, as I recall. It's not like moral standards. It's like I think I think it's like drug abuse and stuff like that. One hmm. A is unavailable for unrestricted military service. Available, you mean? One AO is conscientious objector. Available for non-combatants, military service only. Yeah, they have a ton of. It's a bureaucracy, that, right? Uh, that, the, the the I mean, haven't you ever seen uh, Black Hawk Down and the, the 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 one guy he joins the army and he winds up running a computer in uh, Somalia and he's upset about it because he went there to fight and they got him running a computer and doing bureaucracy because mm-hmm. that's what the army needs. And eventually that's, he winds up just wind up getting in the military uh, uh, caravan and gets killed, which is kind of, which is, you know, kind of putting this poison in the sting of that tail a little too hard. But yeah, like anything, the army runs on bureaucracy. That's been since the Persian empire. I mean, that's not new. <laughs> This yeah, can, we have Canadian new, tablets. Well, oh, I would add that the modern American draft really emerges in the progressive era with World War One, right? So you have this this crossover of the progressive movement with with World War One, right? And mm-hmm. like even in like the Wilsonian kind of dream of let's remake this world into like that's like this is like the perverse progressivism in that Wilsonian vision, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think it's but perverse. If you look okay. at like even how the military functioned. Like, there's a wonderful book. It's kind of a short book, and it's, it's rather old, but it's called No Magic Bullet, which is actually a, a social history of VD in the U.S., right? But, like, a good third of that book is really about World War One, and and how, like, social hygiene. That's the yeah. word, right? I don't social know, hygiene, sure. But the social hygiene, and that's something that was really global. Right? The Chinese were obsessed with social hygiene. The Japanese certainly were obsessed with it. And it's kind of, and across the world, it's when you got this conscription culture emerging in so many different countries, right? With the arms race in Europe and 
all the they trying to develop a new modern military in places like China yeah, the, and Japan. It's like yeah, this the modern the modern, the modern giant military machine. Mm-hmm. Today, 4F is uh, still around. It's uh, registrant not acceptable for military service, maybe due to learning disabilities, drug abuse or alcoholism, criminal record or mental health problems, amputee or tetraplegia, etc. Quadriplegia. Okay. <laughs> so if you're quadriplegic, you're not eligible. <laughs> Why are they still classifying? Uh, Americans for how how they can be conscripted. It's not it, that's not the way the um, empire yes, runs are, anymore. Are you, familiar, are, are you familiar with the selective service system in, here in the U.S.? Well, that's my point. Is like it, they're still doing it, but that's still not. Doing. But it's so crazy because that the empire would absolutely collapse if if you have the elites having to send their kids to go off and get killed on mass. Now it's completely voluntary. Right, and that's how the empire can continue as it is. But if you, if you suddenly did the draft, uh, which I guess is why they still keep this going, right? In case there is a draft, that's basically why. <laughs> but that's not how the war is going to be fought, anyways, right? It's it's not going to be it's not going to be ground pounders, that's for sure. Um, I mean, yeah, for mo- most most of the next global war will not be ground pounders, but if we want to try to hold any territory in any meaningful way. There's unfortunately there's no better way to hold territory than actually having boots on the ground. You can't hold territory with with uh with drones. You need people. I mean we prove that in Iraq. For good and ill. If you don't have the people there you can't hold territory. That's just how war works. You can have all the drones you want, but you can't you can't pacify or control an area or a population without having boots on the ground. Well, you can you can starve them out of existence, like in Yemen or well, something, well, right? Well, it's, yeah, but they, they, it's, that, it's that, that, pretty that horrible. Crime in a different, yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you can genocide people. That's a different way of solving the problem, a horrible way. Yes. Well, this book certainly brought out a few things. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the bu- <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, the, 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 the spout, I mean, the, I mean, there is no. No real. I mean, we have we have the Americans and there's attempted rape and so. But this the war here is surprisingly gentle in some ways. It's not it's, unrealistically it's, gentle. It's, yes, well, it's, it's, it's unrealistically threats. You know, the the Japanese say that they could poison cities and, and could, could kill lots of people, but really they're they're just uh, making a show. And what did the professor? The Americans are so. Degenerate. <laughs> they, the, the scientists they, that were accept were, the bluff and surrender. The scientists were supposedly following right with our viewpoint character. I thought he had a plan. I thought there was a reason for why he was going there. But what other ultimately? I mean, they did have a plan. Uh, uh, there was some technically very interesting stuff, like the the roller controller GPS system, right? <laughs> With a map is, I mean, it's very interesting. It's, it's, it's well done, right? It's, it's gyro stabilized, uh, GPS, right? How, however it works. And he says, you know, oh, it needs to be corrected. That's the Gulf of Mexico, right? Or <laughs> whatever. It's cool. But the thing is, is, uh, you know, the science, the, the scientists, the Japanese scientists and Japanese scientists are, a trope in this period. There's a story by Francis Stevens, uh, in which a Japanese American scientist, uh, creates the first superhero in my, in my estimation. 1906. Uh, 
science fiction story, a, a superhero origin story. Um, and the Japanese uh, scientist runs over the protagonist um, who takes him home and then puts him on a bed. And then he acts, when he wakes up like a couple weeks later, he accidentally walks into the laboratory and is charged with uh, super metal and now is has the power of Samson. Uh, it's like, well, that's interesting. Why are these Japanese scientists, you know, playing this role? They they seem to be developing. They seem to know what they're doing. And then we get him here to America, into Texas, and I feel like he doesn't do anything. It's like it, it's all it's like not finished. Maybe this needs to be expand. Like it's going to be expanded. Or, you know, your page counts reduced, says Bernard McFadden. It's not enough room to fit you in. I need more Plasmon articles. And Last month, my uh, my son um, had us watch this very, very interesting um, uh, anime film uh, called The Wind Rises. Hmm. Uh, and it's the, uh, I think it's the last Miyazaki film. Um, but it's, it's interesting hmm. because it's, it's a historical film. It's not a fantasy or, or, or perspective film. And it's about the um, designer who invented the zero. Oh yeah, uh, and it's it's a heartbreaking film. In in part, I mean, just personally, because the guy has all these dreams and they basically get screwed up, and bad things happen, and that's and it ends in 1945, um, which is not a good ending for for Japan. Um, but also because the uh, you know just thinking about the Japanese inventor mm-hmm. throughout the the Japanese uh, engineers are. The leading ones are brilliant and inspired, but they're always conscious of being second or third rate. They're always learning from um, Italian or German inventors. In fact, one of the great characters is a kind of um, doppelganger of an Italian designer who is a kind of mentor to our main character. Um, and you, you get things like, the, you know, they build these fantastic planes, but they don't have a good road or enough cars, so they have to have oxen. Right. Planes out to a, um, a landing field. I think uh, that's in Supernova in the east. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, Carlin's yeah. talking about that. That's, and yeah, or yeah. You, it goes it goes the same with the the German designers. Uh, Fokker was not uh, uh, Anthony Fokker was Dutch, but he worked for the Germans right during World War One. Um, but, but by the end of World War Two, like they had the best planes, but their fuel was so bad that they had to have yeah. oversized engines. Because it's all synthetic fuel based on, you know, artificial. Oh, it, it was like, it, yeah, you've got this massive interest in, in science and technology. And it's uh, the Zero aircraft was like one of the best aircraft of its period. Like it was way better than all the American aircraft at the time. Oh, and, and, and by the end, of course, it's, it's like totally outclassed. But that that development period of five years or whatever is is incredibly important. So that, that I feel like the the scientist here had a role to play. Like he was, did he design the aircraft that they're unpacking and then you know loading up and get in a ba- there's a basket right? It's very old fashioned aircraft for 1958, but it's a futuristic world. And the the distance they travel in the aircraft is incredible. And the number of hours uh, in the air is incredible. It's all illustrated too. In that, uh, I, it's really weird, Kate. Do you do you know the source for that? Um, because the the text seems to be straight out of the magazine, but the magazine's not available. 
Yeah, I don't know where the pictures came from. It said no. It says they're from the from the um, like it, it says in three parts from Physical Culture Magazine. But there's no uh, extra inf- like somebody's somebody has produced this uh, for Gutenberg, and I, you didn't do it, right? No, I didn't do it. There's usually information kind of like before and after, kind of padding the story that tells um, where it came from and who did yeah. some of the work really see a no it's lot. very it's very light here i mean we get the license at the end and at the beginning it says produced by roger taft grandson of the author and jim tinsley so they wanted this to be seen they wanted milo hastings to be known and that uh, he should be known I, I wonder if there is more stuff out there because I, I think he's he's really uh brian when you if you get a chance to hear that city of endless night i think it'll be blown away uh, oh, Trish, good. Trish, did you ever read that? Um, no, I don't think. So. Sorry, what? it's called. Uh, it's a novel called City of Endless Night. It's set in. No, I haven't read it. Okay, it's it's set in an underground city. That's a country under Berlin. Um, it was I think written right after. No, not even. It's during 1920. Yeah, right after World War One, and it's. About world of the world of World War Three, basically, uh, but way way in the future, and it's all about German science and eugenics, and it's it's so much like Hitler's uh, Nazi Germany, the Third Reich, but but with uh, like royalty instead of <laughs> instead of Hitler, and, it, and it's incredibly weird, but it's all about this, you know, producing under stress of not having enough resources. So it's, I think hearing getting cognitive dissonance when I hear that title, because I keep thinking of the city in the middle of the night, uh-huh. yeah. different, Anders, different, different book, <laughs> which has nothing to do with this. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that it's a lot like this book. It's, it's less literary than it is, uh, you know, sort of a romance. Uh, a character falls into this world. He happens to speak mm-hmm. German. He happens to be a uh, chemist, <laughs> and he yeah, happens he just to happens to look exactly like the guy that yeah. he just you know blew up. Yeah, that yeah, that that's a hard. that's totally understandable as a trope, though. Like uh, this is sort of a phenomena of books back then, right? Yeah, the amazing uh, uh, coincidence. Well, uh, it's um, there's a whole genre for it, the um, Ruritanian romance, which I'm a big fan of, right? Where you you have this guy who comes in uh, to a country that somewhere exists in Europe, and his cousin, uh, uh, separated by hundreds of years, just happens to look identical to him. And then he becomes the king because the, the the king is, and he has to learn the plot. And you know, it's it's a trope, but it's I, a I wonderful get t- trope. Get tangled up with the girl, yeah, you know, and, and then relinquish the power at the end. It is yeah, very much absolutely. like that, yeah. Um, well, the, um, swapping I, got, of roles. I actually got to go uh, take these whining dogs. <laughs> for their no worries. <laughs> uh, what are you working on in Librivox? Before you you leave, what are you working on next? I really um, like you your know, narration. I am doing some commercial work right now. Oh, for, okay. Um, the young adult novels seems to be kind of a, a popular uh, genre right mm-hmm. now. So I'm doing a few of those, but I've been looking at some. Um, I love doing LibriVox works because I love the old stories. Mm-hmm. 
And so I've been looking at some interesting ones. Um, There's some books by Van Powell that look like they might be fun. I've never never even heard of it. Uh, Van Powell is a first name, last name, or... It's, oh. That's Van Powell, uh, first name and last name, and apparently he worked in Hollywood. Oh, and and wrote kind of these books that he was hoping to turn into movies, and so they're they're just a little bit crazy. But this one is, um, it's actually called the Mystery of the Fifteen Sounds. So that's probably the next thing I'll do for Librivox. And there's also a bunch of um, the, what are they, the planet stories? Oh, yeah. Are, uh, those are just sitting there waiting for... Oh, please do that. I, there's so many planet stories hitting Gutenberg. I've, I've had them up on my site for a long time, but, it you know, it's just a trickle compared to what people... People at LibriVox can only really get stuff through through Project Gutenberg. And now that the planet stories are pouring in, there's so many good stories. Yeah. So many good yeah. stories. So many good writers. I would love to pick up some of those. Um, it, you know, but LibriVox is all volunteers. Of course. So it's really just, you know, who has time to do what. But, uh, yeah, the planet stories look really good. And, and, you know, some of these older, like, Van Powell things. For a while, I was doing a lot of books that were written right in, like, the 19-teens. Mm-hmm. And they all seemed very, um, a lot of them were very focused on socialism. Good. That seemed to be the big theory. <laughs> oh, the other way. Okay, bad. Way to go. You know, so there was a lot of uh, kind of worker revolt type stories. Oh, well, that, maybe that I, is I, good. I kind of went through a phase for a while. That sounds great. Um, I'm looking at the Van Powell uh, science fiction encyclopedia entry, and he's, he seems to have a lot of mystery boys and Sky Scout books. So um, he is he's genre related, if not... Uh, actually yeah. in the genre. So I'm looking forward to that. I've never read. I, I'm a big Nancy Drew fan and I like Hardy Boys as well. So it's sort of, you know, uh, adventure fiction, uh, wrapped up with a bit of SF and ghosts and stuff. I'm totally down with that. Yeah. Yeah, I, to- I really do prefer doing the public domain reading. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's definitely much more fun and, there's a lot less of back and forth with the author, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> they can't complain that I That's made right. their character too whiny, <laughs> which I get a lot with the YA stuff. So. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, but they do pay you. That's the one thing, right? Uh, yeah, I'm not getting rich, but um, no. there is, you know, you build up some credits and get some royalties every now and then, so... And if it turns out to be a hit, you can star in the movie. <laughs> hey, oh, that was great. Uh, hmm, I'm not quite sure there's a character for me, but uh, maybe my granddaughter could. <laughs> do the narrate. You can do the narration. <laughs> there you go. I'll do the the exactly the narration, the voiceover part. Nice. So, but thank you so much for having me. And, thank you, um, and thank you for doing all that work. Story. Oh, much appreciated. Super. Uh, I, I'm only thing I I don't like about Livervox is that they're not producing more content all day long, <laughs> and they produce so much. Everybody who works there is wonderful. That's all I can say. Uh, Even the people who do the same really Kurt Vonnegut story fun. over and over again, eventually they're going to get tired of that, and they're going to do something that hasn't been done. And now with these new Planet stories, it's going to be so good. 
I, I, somebody needs yeah. to start a Planet Stories podcast just taking them out of the LibriVox thing and slapping them together and saying, this issue of Planet Stories, right? And tell, yeah, tell yeah. why we should read it. How, why should we listen to uh, it? Yeah. I might just do the Planet Stories as a book coordinator and get some other volunteers to help with the reading. Awesome. Um, there's, there's actually a, a lot of people that I work with. That there's one story. Um, I can yeah, absolutely I mean, recommend to you called uh, The Dancers that came out recently. It's already done. Uh, I've done a show on it. Um, there's an audio drama of it already. It's by Margaret Sinclair. It's really short. It's a perfect example of really why Planet Stories is overlooked and not thought about compared to Astounding and that sort of thing. Margaret Sinclair. Uh, it's uh, under another title on good, uh, author on Gutenberg, but check that one out, The Dancers. I definitely will. It's short. It's like 15 minutes long, I think. It's really good. Well, I can answer that. Yeah, it's awesome. been a while since I've had uh, time for a LibriVox prod- project, but I would definitely be interested yeah. in reading some Planet Stories. Uh, check Very out, cool. uh, yeah. search my uh, hashtag on Twitter, or not my name on Twitter, and, and Planet Stories, and I'm, I point out which ones are all Gutenberg. Because they don't say, they just give the title when they're releasing them, but... It's it's amazing how much uh, content has just hit in the last like month and a half, not even. Yeah, somebody's uh, scanning them pretty pretty quickly. Oh, so they, they've I, been scanned noticed. years ago, but the OCR—that's the hard part, right? It's getting them typed yeah, up and cl- making sure that everybody knows that this is public domain, one hundred percent, as opposed to the way I do it, which is saying, "Look, I did the work, and then it's not at Gutenberg, so <laughs> I just have to trust Jesse." This is Greg Weeks' uh, Gutenberg is much more trustworthy than Jesse, apparently. (laughs) Well, Internet Archive also is a good source for public domain. Absolutely. So there's a lot of overlap between Gutenberg and Internet Archive. But Internet Archive are more, um, they don't do quite the care with the OCR, so you'll get um, smudges on the pages and blurred out words. It's, it's it's what we get what we can get with the scans. I'll let you go watch it, walk your yeah. dogs. All right, thank you so much. Though. Thank and, you. Um, look forward to the next lesson. Thank you. Anybody else have any uh, other thoughts on this this ancient science fiction story? Is it a science fiction story? Sorta. Of? Yes, it is. I just thought what's it in the future? So it's science fiction by by uh, definition. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I don't know. Speculative. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. <laughs> it's definitely speculative. It's speculative fiction, one hundred percent. It's. Did you guys see the? Uh, there's a YouTube channel called Vegan Death Metal Chef. <laughs> no. no, I did not know about that. It's just I don't know if the guy's still making them, but but he'll he'll do um, he'll he'll take you in his kitchen and he'll show you recipes, vegan recipes. Um, but he's wearing corpse paint. And he's got all the black leather and metal, and uh, like half of his tools are like scary Klingon tools. And he does everything in this voice. You know, he's like, chop the carrots. <laughs> it's Maybe a gimmick. Maybe a little Muppet there for a second. Oh, people <laughs> call it the Cookie Monster voice. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yes. Cookie Monster is so death metal. Just, so I'm just imagining like this this story that way, right? In the clutch of the war god, and what do you do? You know, you plant rice. <laughs> you know, just... <laughs> well, nothing's stopping you from doing your own LibriVox interpretation. They, they will, I'm sure, even put it up. <laughs> the, it, it, sometimes, if it's accented b- really badly, 
I, I like, okay, maybe this was a bad idea. But generally, I find, you know, the narrators are so, um, they're just so good. And some of them are just like amazing, right? Kate Follis is really good. Um, it's, it's, it's astounding, like, cause I, I can barely read a sentence and not stumble, but so many people are talented with their voice and know how to pronounce things right. I'm, I'm all, always impressed. This is the free culture that the post-scarcity world we're get we're coming, it's coming through Gutenberg and through, uh, LibriVox. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio. Hello, Evan. Hey, how are you? Okay, where are you, Evan? China. Uh, Still in China. February 2019. Holy cow, that's almost two years ago. Wow. It might have been two years ago because that, that's when it came out. And I doubt it came out the week after we recorded it. No, well, because, because you were way ahead in advance. Yeah. It looks like a, I owe the SFF Audio empire some time <laughs> then. Uh, it's not an empire, but you definitely owe some time for sure. You missed our. You missed all sorts of good shows. We did a William Wilson show. That would have been good for you. Uh, well, I, I, I had a, a doppelganger. Attack. Yeah, sure. <laughs> oh, there's Trish. Um, there's Trish. Let's see. What else did you miss? That uh, uh, it's only a few things that are on the schedule here. Back to oh, April. It's great stuff. I mean, uh, looking backward, uh, People's Republic of Walmart. Walmart. You would have been good for that. Yeah. Yeah, Great God Pan. Great God Pan, that's a good book. Coming Race by Edward Bolivar Lytton. Oh, I should have brought my Vril staff. Dude. Uh, actually, yeah, it was funny. The Milo Hastings book we did. Yeah, the other Milo Hastings. That book would totally be in your bailiwick. Yeah? Oh, yeah. It's super interesting. This book is not as interesting. <laughs> I'm saving it. For the podcast. I'm saving it. Uh, Colossus, the Forbin Project. Oh yeah, Jewel of the Seven Stars by Bram Stoker. Uh, Rastanek the Devil, even the Philip Jose Farmer. Weird, very weird book. It should have short story should have been like a a novel. Uh, yeah, looking backward, you missed Sin it Hellcat. Short. It was a novella. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. You miss Sin Hellcat. Come on. That's right. <laughs> right in your bailiwick. Uh, but you said you wanted to be on Red Plenty, so I added you to that. We have not, um, we have not booked the date on that, but four futures, uh, and then probably Red Plenty is my guess. Well, you're going to have to, uh, feed the data for that into the master computer. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, and player of games. That was surprisingly good too. There's a lot of things that are sort of, Brian Worthy there, or Brian Interest there. Brian adjacent, Brian. <laughs> Brian sphere, the in the in the Brian sphere. Well, I had the I had an insane year. I mean, part of it was my most recent book came out, and so I've been doing stuff for that. Uh, and then um, 
I, I didn't hear about this. If I did, I've forgotten about it. What what was it? It's called Academia Next. It's the next generation of higher ed. So I've been I've been doing oh. talks about it. I've been doing um, presentations on it. Got awards for it. That kind of thing. And then uh, in March, like sixty percent of my business evaporated. Because, no doubt. Uh, so I've, I've been doing a lot of 70-hour weeks trying to uh, rebuild everything and get it uh, all online. So, And then uh, <clears throat> I work – I don't know, Evan and Trish, if you know, I mean I, I work in higher ed and I'm a, I'm a futurist specializing in the future of higher ed. So I've been um, doing tons of uh, interviews and consults about the impact of this. And part of it comes because on one page of my most recent book, which came out in January, I've got um, – this paragraph which says, imagine what would happen if a major pandemic struck the world. <laughs> you know, how, would that, how would it impact higher education? I talk about, you know, online classes and sports. And ever since March, people have been saying, you know, what the hell, man? What did you know? What kind of dark forces are you in league with? Yeah. yeah. You just have to be sort of into SF and have a interest in history and everything's available to you. All knowledge of the future. Well, I, agree. I agree. So, since you asked, well, yeah, but I, I don't want to uh, dislodge the conversation by talking about my own stuff. Well, we're we're still in pre-chat material, so we're not allowed to talk about the book yet. Um, I sent, <laughs> I think I sent Will. No, Will's not on, so it would have been Evan, I guess. Uh, something, something about. Uh, I think Paul, Paul, you tweeted about this inter. What was like a cosmic superhighway article? Yes. Did you all see this? You you poured cold water on it, but everything's relative, Jesse. Everything is relative. I mean, compared to how long things take to move through this whole system, it is a superhighway. And it's not not a warp drive, and the the article is not clickbaiting explaining it's a warp drive. All right. I'll let everybody decide for themselves. I I, I stood up for you with with Jesse saying we shouldn't torment you three weeks in a row on this. (laughs) No, this is not... This is not three weeks in a row. It's only two weeks. Like right? Aurora came up. I don't. Was it Aurora? Well, yeah, that was a weird and connection. Then, what was what, what was then, the book for that? Was we like didn't Sin Hellcat. We ended up yeah, about Sin Aurora. Hellcat. We yes. talked about Aurora by Kim <laughs> Kim Stanley Robinson. Digressions on that thing. conversation because well, some of us didn't want to talk about the book. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I, I just sent it to the group chat here, but the the headline for this article. I'm going to click on, click on it. Uh, okay. Astronomers just found, quote, superhighways for fast travel through the solar system. Uh, now, fast travel makes me think of computer games, you know, where, like, you... Yeah. yeah so I, I think that whoever wrote this is probably playing on that idea, uh, but maybe not. Invisible structures generated by gravitational interactions in the solar system have created a, quote, unquote, space superhighway network astronomers have discovered and there's a few other lines that are like uh there was a a cosmic autobahn i'm like so i read the article and i'm pretty sure this is just gravity assist and like a few other things like um uh i i I mean it's it's basically the the non-technological equivalent of hoffman transfer orbits okay Okay, yeah. but you know, like, there's no new like they didn't just discover uh, a wormhole to the gamma quadrant here. We're talking no, the man. the numbers in here are like between the planet Jupiter and Saturn. It could take only decades. I'm like, 
Okay. But I think they've even changed the title since then. It sounds like it's like been toned down. Cosmic Superhighway, but it's only within the solar system. And hundreds of years to the nearest uh, uh, next stellar body. So that's not a... I don't know. I thought it was... I thought it was clickbait-ish. Am I wrong? You guys looking at this article? Well, um, who, who, who's here? wrong, Jesse or me? Well, uh, the one well, Paul, you, Paul, you didn't. Say, you did. All you did was retweet it. You didn't write it. No, but but you're giving me grief for. Uh, well, it showed up in my timeline, and I'm thinking this is Paul thinking that he's got his uh, his uh, non-Aurora argument all solved now. No, it has nothing to do with. That. Yeah, that's what I thought though. And no, that was, no, and that was not my that was not me going for anything like that. That's right. crazy. That's crazy talk. Alright. I think we have a future and it's it's very limited within our our uh, very close solar system for humans. But I'm I'm I'd be happy if they actually did discover you know, a wormhole that Took you to the gamma quadrant or whatever. I don't mind uh, fighting the Dominion. I'm I'm down uh, with that. I mean, there's plenty there's plenty of stories that go for that. Um, there's or and, and settings like, for example, the um the RPG Blue Planet. Basically, we discover a wormhole that connects our solar system to another with a very ocean covered Earth like world, and so we promptly start colonizing the world, and well shenanigans happen because there's alien life on the world and there's secrets and Earth doesn't quite know what it's found. I think the real... Who built the gate in the first place? I think the real uh, underworld is much more likely than, you know, any... (laughs) You know, like Elon Musk should be drilling more instead of... (laughs) Like if he's trying to colonize a new new place, (laughs) the more Uh, drilling would probably get him a lot... Yes, colonizing colonizing Mars is infinitely harder than fixing the Earth. Wow, no. Earth Earth is fine. It's the humans well, that are screwed. The, well, well, Earth 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 as a general system, Earth as a place for humans is becoming more and more untenable. Desertification, Sorta. climate change. Sorta. I mean, Earth Earth will be fine. Would be fine if we were wiped out, but. The, the changes to Earth's climate and uh, biomes is not, and mass extinction and stuff is not good in the short term for humans. I mean, Nickelback, that's a bad sign. <laughs> it's a music reference. Pretty sure. No, what, I'd, what I'd love to see, what I would love to see is uh, a novel where uh, uh, Elon Musk is um, establishing the uh, boring company. He's building this huge complex underground and stumbles into a Lost race. Yeah. I think great. great. I, I mean, it, it would be uh, very appropriate. I, I'm, I'm watching so much Deep Space Nine, it's infecting my dreams. But, um, oh, no. uh, dude, it's uh, it's because like back to back to back, you know. And I'm like uh, that. Do you remember there was like this? Uh, he was a lieutenant or lieutenant commander, um, bald guy, yellow suit, you know, you know security guy. Uh, Eddington. 
Commander Edditon. So he's introduced, uh, I guess, early or late, late in season three or early season four, and he's in a few episodes. And he's basically uh, Odo's competition from Starfleet. And uh, oh yeah, he keeps and, wanting to do things the Starfleet way. That's and right. Says, you know, we found. He even sabotages like the the uh, uh, Defiant at one on one mission because he was under Starfleet orders. And uh, of course, there's no consequences. <laughs> He's just like back in the uh, back in the good books. By the end of the episode, there's right. <laughs> but when trials happen in Starfleet, they're always rather perfunctory. Um, in any case, he uh, it turns out he was a Maki agent, right? And uh, Cisco's Cisco's <laughs> uh, girlfriend was also a Maki agent, and and he gives this speech to uh, Cisco, and at the end of the speech, I'm like. Okay, Cisco's wrong, and the Federation is wrong, <laughs> and uh, Eddington's right, and the Maquis are right. And then, uh, what do they do with that on Voyager? They flush it all down the toilet. And I'm like, oh yeah, that sucked. It, it reminds me of how bad Voyager, had, it had such a great premise. And then yeah, it could have been <clears throat> really interesting with the continuing tension between the Maquis and Federation people on the ship, but they... Basically, they put on the Federation uniform. They uh, obey everything Janeway says. It's terrible. They didn't even they didn't even do the very very basic thing, which would like use one of the Mackie ships as like a uh, a shuttle. Like they had endless shuttles, and they're all Federation shuttles. I was like, why why aren't you using that Mackie thing that you took on board when you went to the Delta Quadrant or whatever? And they never ever did that. It just never came up, and it was in the shop for repairs. Yeah, but um, also totally. We uh, Brian, you missed the Treconomics show. No, and, I didn't. <laughs> no, you didn't. Oh, you you've heard it already. Well, um, it was uh, on twelve oh six. We're still okay. talking about it. That was last week. Um, but uh, what's so funny is. Um, uh, in this episode, I just watched of Deep Space Nine. They were talking about industrial replicators, like uh, mm-hmm. that can make whole factories, right? It can, and they were giving twelve to Cardassia, and uh, Major Kira says, uh, "Hey, they only gave two to Bajor," and and uh, Cisco waves that aside and says, "You know, we got to get these these industrial replicators to Cardassia," <laughs> and then the Maquis hijack them. And say, leave us alone, or we'll, we'll fuck you up. So, industrial replicators was that mentioned in the uh, in the Treconomics yeah, book? Different types of replicators. But back to Eddington, there was something I didn't talk about. Uh-huh. I was thinking about it, and it's kind of a criticism of the book, I guess. Is at one point he says he's kind of his favorite character is Eddington. Remember this? I ba- I barely remember that. If I do remember, yeah, it. he yeah. says something like, "My favorite character is Eddington." And then he has this whole thing, this whole sub-chapter about the Borg. And he goes to this argument that the Borg are basically the inversion of the Federation, which is lifted from... That speech. speech. And he doesn't really acknowledge that, which... If he had just done that... I think he forgot. His fondness for Eddington. Yeah, he's just not making amazing notes. He plagiarized the show in a way. (laughs) Plagiarized? Well, yeah, but subconsciously, I'm sure. It was was like... uh, it's like he remembered that from the show and he wrote it down, but he, 
he's not doing it the way you need to, like episode by episode, making notes like madman. Yeah, that's what quotation we're doing marks. for the sex book. That's right. We got we got like I got like a whole notebook. It's a it's <laughs> every episode. There's something. Seems like, or almost every episode. Except in Discovery, they just they forget people have sex in Discovery. <laughs> they, they, they only talk about their. Sex. They're in love. They only talk about their gender, but they don't talk about the what they do with their gender. Whatever. I my uh, my son has been trying to get my whole family to watch uh, Deep Space Nine, so we've been dutifully watching it with him. And excellent. And, you know that's got ups and downs. Um, I mean, I, I think it's much better than Voyager overall. Definitely. Um, but we haven't seen uh, Discovery yet. What about Picard? Did you yeah, see the? I, I'm watching it, so you guys don't have to. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Is it that bad? Oh, it's ho- it's, really it's bad. horrible. It's, it's not Star Trek, so, is what it is. Like, the main complaint I've seen about Discovery, like, is that everything's so fast, right? Like, everything's just about action, and, <coughs> and the plots don't really develop. It's like something is introduced and it's resolved immediately, you know? And you're just kind of being pulled along, and you don't really get to know the characters, right? This often happens. Like, a character dies in an episode, and it's like, that's the first episode where they actually introduce the character in any, you know... Major way. I, I I I watched all three seasons, and well, I guess third season is not done. But like, I don't know the characters' names really, except the main one and Michael Burnham, Captain Michael and Saru. Saru's the uh, alien. Giorgio. Yeah, Giorgio. I know her. She's the others, uh, like the guy emperor who, like, or something. Goes into the spore drive and always like has emotions. I don't know. Like oh he's like God. supposed to be the engineer, but he never does engineering stuff. <laughs> he's just like, just is the spore guy. The spore See, guy. <laughs> he just he just warps through the fungus network somehow. Uh, like I don't know any of these characters. I, like he just warps when I see him on screen, I'm like, oh god, you're gonna talk about your feelings, aren't you? <laughs> That's I've most been watching oh, the rebroadcasts on uh, CBS is airing it now that they don't have content to air, you know, taking it from CBS All Access. And I've been quite interested in it. We're still in season one, but... Uh, of Discovery? Uh, yeah, Discovery, sorry, yes. Uh, and I've been finding it interesting, and I'm following the uh, characters with interest. How could you even get through yeah, the first episode? I, I tuned out with the characters. I was, so, I was so like, why am I listening to these, these Klingons arguing Klingon? For 45 minutes. Oh, we get past that. Oh, oh they like the production value on that. Like, there's so much money spent, but they like they a lot of money spent. the dentures on the Klingon makeup because the actors are like talking through these dentures. It's like weird decisions. Yeah, that Even was a really makeup. weird decision to invent yet a third. It's like the, I never remember whatever. the Klingons in Deep Space Nine or Next Generation having troubles talking. No, I, I'm, I'm so surprised. Like, you see uh, Quark, he's got these really gnarled teeth and Rom. And yet you can understand yeah. everything they're saying. Even, even uh, I think Worf even has like some sort of fake yucky teeth, right? Yeah. One episode he buys, uh, Rom's, or not, not, not Rom's, what's the, Nog's, uh, tooth sharpener. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like really excited about it. There's a, uh, Worf is like such a, he gets really excited about, uh, not having people come visit him in his quarters randomly. So he moves out onto the, Onto the defiant. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. That's so funny. It's like he's like, no one will come. That'll be great. And he and he and uh, 
uh, Odo bond over the fact that they hate people visiting their, <laughs> their quarters. And I think that it's like, wow, this is like such a weird, <laughs> weird, <laughs> weird, uh, I mean, I get it, but also it's supposed to be, you know, these are your friends coming over to visit. Whatever. Yeah, but they're, cl- they're if they Klingons and a and a changeling, they're different than you and I. They're and well, that's different. well, that's what they're supposed to be, right? But uh, uh, you right. Got, y'all, y'all have to hear Evan's theory about how how the Klingons got to be the way the Klingons are, and it makes total sense. You know, I, I forgot that there's an you actor. Guys hear my theory on that? Paul, do you got my theory on the Klingons? I'm not certain. I forgot. I think oh, it's Will really got good. it. But let me let me just before you get there, before you go there, Evan. Klingons are presented. Oh shit! I just got to tell you, there's like an actor, John Kolokos, who was in the original Star Trek, who comes back as the same character, and he doesn't have the the ridges on his forehead in the original, right? But he has the forehead ridges and the teeth and all that in the later one so it's not explained but evan's theory explains this let's hear it evan oh yeah it it does even though enterprise tried to do this but forget those two couple just two episodes all right so there's no way this culture could like develop space there's even an episode i think of next generation where there's like a klingon scientist yep on board and and like she's like really meek and embarrassed like there's no way they can develop like warp drives and replicators and stuff. They're too busy banging heads. That culture. So the only explanation is that they were like the Federation. You know, they got there before the Feder before Earth and Vulcan. You know, some centuries before, and they were just like bored because truckonomics. Right. So Post scarcity. Larping. They just start larping like clan warfare. Yep. The Klingons start. They're larpers. Clan warfare. That's well, right. Because they're like, well, what would be fun to do? It's like, well, we'll we'll just break up the clans and we'll play politics. You know, why do they have this weird medieval style like politics? It's actually pre-medieval. It's the House of Moog is, is more I, fun than my theory is that they are yeah. larping. They're larping, and they did it so long, it just becomes their culture, and they don't know any better. That's right. It sounds kind of like the Republican Party. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> like, like if you do something long enough, it becomes part of you. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and and they don't know at this point, right? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Worf's wife, remember Worf's Kronos, wife? So Kronos is the first game master. Yeah, <laughs> I'm back in the, not Kronos. Uh, what's his name? Kalis. Kalis. Yeah. Kalis is the first GM. <laughs> <laughs> It's got a certain sense to it. And you know, uh, remember um, Worf's wife? She's half human, half Klingon. And they have a kid together, right? Um, she She's uh, she's saying they're all, she's like breaking kayfabe. You know, she's, she's like, Klingon shit is stupid. <laughs> and he's like, I'm a Klingon warrior. And then they have like rough sex. And, and he, he's like, I, I can't hate you. <laughs> <laughs> she says, I'm not going to raise my kid to be a Klingon warrior because that's stupid. And he's like, no, he has to be one. Right? It's all LARPing. You're right. This theory has legs. <laughs> they have their teams, right? Everyone, everyone's in their teams and they're all like competing for something. I guess originally it was like... Honor. Gonna they're competing the for honor. will be like the, the Grand Counselor, the Gowron. That's right. 
it, they're they're taking it. It's it's absolutely it, it absolutely fits. It makes total sense, and it explains why you know you you said there there's an episode right. I think it's early. I don't know. So some episode where they they ask Worf, how come you used to not have those brow ridges? And he says, we don't talk about that. <laughs> They're retconning it. Right? It's like, it used to be WWF. What happened? Don't talk about that. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's Trials and Tribulations where they talk about it. Is it? Okay. It because that is funny, yeah. Because they they've gone back actually, in time and all the Klingons... They don't actually work. talk about it in Trials and Tribulations. Yeah, he says, don't talk That's about where it. The, we don't talk about it. Oh, right. That was the right way to deal with it. It, it. it is the right way. Because Enterprise tried to retcon that. And it right. totally fits right. Evan's theory. I more or less like Enterprise Season 4, but I think trying to retcon the, the ridges, it's kind of lame. I mean, there's some kind of disease that afflicted the Klingons. Yeah. They're right. trying to, like, genetically... They were trying to use, like, the, the, the Kanunian Soon genetic upgrades to nope. enhance Klingon warriors or something. It made their ridges go away. Kayfabe is much better explanation. <laughs> I, I, right. I've been introducing that phrase to everybody in it's the a fun one. current politics. It's a fun one. It explains a lot. Um, explains too much. Uh, we could uh, get into that as well, but I don't know how much time Brian has or Trish has. Uh, they're sort and, of, and, and we don't have I, Kate Fallis for some reason. I can't seem to create so, raise so her. So I hit a. So I try, try my recorder again. Absolutely. And talk about um, being in the clutch of the war god. Sure. Yes, let's do that. Yeah, let's do it. Trish is getting impatient, <laughs> champing at the bit to talk about this. Oh, I realize we're only 28 minutes into the call. That's but. right. <laughs> All right, so there is an e-text out there. Um, it's on Gutenberg. I'll put it in the group chat here. Hopefully yep. that will not break anything. I, I found it this morning. Um, and uh, I think that's pretty much it. We can get started, right? Oh, uh, this is not your job, uh, by the way, Paul. You're, you're, you tell people the order. Because you did the calculation, and you care more than I do. All I know is I'm first. And then, <laughs> other than that, I don't have to worry. Everybody else is... Gonna... Well, I think I'm last now, right? Uh, no, no, no. Trish no, no, is way Trish, after Trish you, because she's only been on, like, nine or something, right? Well, I think she had more episodes or something. No, Trish? I, no, you're I thinking mean, I, I was mice or something. I was published, not episodes that we've recorded. No, but you, Evan's been on for, like, tons of Philip yeah. K. Dick ones, so he's... There's no... Yeah, I mean, I mean yeah, so it... So it's going to be, it's going to be Jesse Paul. Um, let's see. You had Brian. How many was twenty? Yeah, yeah. Jesse Paul, Evan, Brian, Trish. Okay. Yeah. How many was Brian on? Evan's, Evan's at fifty-one. Brian's at forty-four. Forty-four. Okay. I, I told uh, Eric. Um, he had. I asked him how many he thought he'd been on, and he said like nine. And I said it's That's like 20. 20 or twenty-two. Yeah. And he's like, wow. <laughs> Which is pretty funny. I find it funny that Misa and Marissa are almost on the exact same number of episodes, only like a few pale parts. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because uh, Marissa's mostly Philip K. Dick one, so that's why, I think. Anyways, anyway. let's, let's get started on this. Um, I know my order. Everybody else good? Ready to go. All right. Okay. Here we go.